My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. All right, here we go. In three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who in 1964 was born in South Miami to immigrant parents, his father Russian and his mother Cuban. He was raised in a strict household that taught him if he wanted to do or be anything in life, it was on him to make it happen. Fast forward to 1984, while working as a lifeguard, he got to see his first marijuana bust, and it was at this moment that the hook was set for my guest to become a law enforcement agent. Working with customs on the Miami boat cruise as an undercover detective posing as an international smuggler, leading an investigation into one of the biggest marijuana and cocaine trafficking cases that the Northwest United States had seen, my guest worked on the Joint Terrorism Task Force and was even the acting attache in London, England. This week is not only about my guest's amazing career, but also the devastating loss of his son who was killed in a U.S. Marine training incident off of San Clemente Island, where the AAV that he was riding in had a catastrophic failure and sank, trapping him inside. My guest has taken this incident and used it to help not only soldiers in the field, but to find those responsible accountable for their actions. It's my great pleasure and honor to introduce you to Peter Ostrovsky. What's going on, my friend? Hey, good evening, DJ. Thank you for that uh, kind introduction. Yeah, uh, there is so much about you that is so crazy. The stories just of your family and youth, and that's how we always start the show. But we have to kind of set the scene. I said that your parents were immigrants, uh, your father Russian, your mother Cuban. But to go back even further, your grandfather from Siberia taking your father to China, well, going to China where your father was born. Can we just kind of start at Siberia and move forward all the way into Cuba? Yeah. So um, during the uh, Russian Revolution, my Russian grandfather left Siberia and uh, went to China. And that's after he was imprisoned. And they... um, they had uh, determined that they basically wanted his uh, skills and abilities because he was like a, a mining engineer. So uh, when, once he was released, he basically took off and went to China. So um, met my grandmother, who was also Russian, uh, in like a Russian community in China. And uh, my dad was born in Shanghai in uh, 1932. And uh, they ended up uh, moving to uh, Tianjin, where uh, my grandfather had a trading company with his uh, brother. And so my dad spent his, uh, m- most of his, his entire childhood essentially in China, uh, in Tianjin, you know, grew up in a Russian-speaking household. Of, cor- of course, they had, um, you know, Chinese help. They had like a houseboy, they had a cook. So my dad ended up learning Chinese he was going to an international school, 
he learned English at the international school. So here's a, a kid, by the time he's 15, he already speaks uh, three languages. Well, when you say that, that he spoke three languages as a kid, kind of fast forward real quick. You had told me that you grew up in a very strict Spanish-speaking home. And I was kind of wondering why that was set up that way with your dad speaking three. And I think in the end, he spoke a total of five languages, I think, total. Right. Uh, why it was so important that it be a Spanish-speaking household. I, I think that was uh, probably out of convenience for my mother, you know, because uh, she, my mother is Cuban. Um, that was her primary language. So uh, I think it was just easier for, for her. You know, that being said, to back up some. Uh, so when my dad was 15, this is 1947, um, his family decides to move to Havana, Cuba, because they have the belief that that's the place to be involved in trading. Um, so they leave China on a ship. They go to La Havre, France, make their way to Paris. They're in post-World War II Paris for a year. My dad's going to high school there, to an international school. Um, so now my dad is learning French because he's in Paris. But the interesting thing was his sister, uh, my aunt, um, she was much younger than my father. And, and growing up in Tianjin, like little girls, especially little Russian girls, just couldn't be about the town like my dad was, you know, roaming around the town as a young teenager. So my aunt only spoke Russian and Chinese. So when they got to Paris, they tried to put her in the inter international school and they wouldn't admit her because she didn't speak English. So basically she had to be homeschooled for a while to learn some functional English and then she could go to school uh, there in Paris. Uh, so they spent their uh, year in Paris and uh, then they uh, took another ship and went to Havana. My dad went to high school in Havana at uh, Ruston Academy. Um, and uh, of course now he's in a Spanish speaking environment so he learns Spanish. And um, he eventually met my mother um, who uh, was one of six sisters uh, growing up in uh, Havana. And uh, they got married in uh, 1959, kind of as everything was happening with uh, Fidel Castro and his, revol his revolution. And uh, a year later, they uh, came to the United States. Um, they initially went to Chicago. They spent one cold winter in Chicago and realized that that wasn't for them. And then they came back to Miami and uh, linked up with my uh, mother's sisters and their husbands. And uh, that's where it all started for them was in uh, Miami, Florida. Now, when you, you spoke about they moved to Cuba because they thought that's where the trade was going to be, your grandfather was going to get into the sugar cane trade business, correct? Right. Yeah, he thought that that, that well, it, my grandfather and his brother, his brother had made an initial trip to Havana, and he was under this belief that, oh, we can break into this industry, not realizing that, you know, these were like large corporations and this wasn't something for... Uh, two guys to be just kind of freewheeling and doing their own thing and, and starting up their own thing. So that never really happened for them. My grandfather ended up opening an antique and art shop in uh, old Havana. And, um, 
you know, that's how he was making a living. As I'm told, uh, you know, they lived like in a rental apartment. They had uh, used furnishings. It wasn't much to look at, but they were, uh, you know, living this new life in, in um, you know, tropical Cuba. So going all the way back to Siberia and, and uh, you know, I, I need to go back because I'm trying to kind of set up how it happened in the United States. You've got Russia, China, then Paris, then Cuba. So there's a very uh, communist background there. Um, how did that affect your father and your grandfather? Because your, your grandfather, you said, was taken prisoner. Um, how did it affect later on moving forward with their life where they, I mean, they continuously moved to communist countries. So did they, did they still have that strong belief? Were they trying to get away from it? And that was just the easiest way to do it. What, what kind of set that up? I think uh, they were courageous in a sense that, you know, once they did the one move, uh, they realized that they could do it again. And then it's, it's essentially, they were fleeing countries that became communists and um, we're, we're looking for that new, uh, better life. You know, my grandmother's side of the uh, family had a very um, uh, rough life. They were um, in this uh, Sakhalin Island area and uh, her, uh, I think her, her, one of her brothers was killed when like these marauders, uh, you know, attacked them. Uh, where they were living in this coastal town and um, drowned him in the sea. So, um, you know, they, they, they were courageous, I would say, in a sense that they, they knew that they needed to seek a, a new and better life somewhere. And I guess once you, once you do one move, you know, the next move is easier and the third move is easier and, uh, and that's how you do it, you know. Right. Um, did you ever hear your grandfather ever talk about communism, ever talk about Russia, ever talk about being in China, anything like that uh, that you remember growing up? Not really, no. And unfortunately, I didn't learn Russian, which when I was cleaning out my dad's safety deposit box uh, after he passed away, I found this uh, Patek Philippe uh, pocket watch, this gold pocket watch with a gold chain. And I came to find out from my aunt that that actually belonged to my great-grandfather who had worked for a Dutch trading company at some point and was given that pocket watch as a gift. Now, this thing, were like I looked at it, it looked like new. It, it, it was in great condition. It had the little key where you could wind it. I wound it, set the time. It kept up accurate time. So I see the serial number on that. Paddock Philippe pocket watch, and I uh, go on the internet, of course, and search uh, for these pocket watch serial numbers. That pocket watch was from 1860. That's the year that Lincoln became president. This is incredible, you know, um, in incredible to think that, uh, you know, my great grandfather uh, had that. And then he passed it on to my grandfather, my grandfather right. to my father. And my father, Never talked to me about it. Uh, it seemed that he had forgotten where he had put it. I spoke to my aunt and my aunt was, had said that, oh, oh yeah, like I asked him about it about three years ago where uh, grandpa's pocket watch was and he kind of drew a blank. <laughs> but it was in a safe deposit box, you know, a mile from the house. 
that whole time. So let me ask you, with your dad moving to the United States before you're born, and I don't know if you ever talked to him about it, with him being Russian, your mom being Cuban, and at that kind of time, that moment in time, was it tough for them to be here? And what I mean by that is by outside influences, is it tough? Is it just tough for them being here? Because your father spoke all those languages, but your mother was strictly Spanish. Was it uh, a kind of a rough go when they first got here? Um, it certainly was a rough go in Chicago uh, after living in Havana. But uh, what I didn't tell you was that my dad had been going to college up in Montreal. So my dad knew uh, kind of like the North American lifestyle. And uh, uh, so it wasn't that rough. I mean, he pretty much hit the ground running and he worked for this company called Allied Radio as a salesman and um, ended up working for a couple other companies before at some point during my, while I was a child, he started his own company from our kitchen table in our house. And, uh, and it just grew from there. And he was uh, selling and exporting uh, radio broadcast equipment to uh, Latin America and the Caribbean. So uh, he was well entrenched in, you know, all things uh, Latin America, uh, very much involved in, um, uh, you know, proliferating, you know, uh, radio stations throughout South America, especially in Colombia. Uh, you know, he had uh, uh, many clients uh, down there, Peru, Jamaica, uh, Central America, Ecuador, uh, Venezuela. So, uh, you know, pretty much back then in the 70s, 80s, uh, all of those radio stations were being supplied by my dad's company in Miami. Well, it was when you and I talked before you talked about going with your father and doing some stuff down at the docks and, and collecting money and stuff. And, and on the surface, it sounds very funny. And then when you get a little deeper, it still sounds a little funny, but I would like you to tell that story of exactly what was going on there. Yeah, it was funny on, on Saturdays when I was a kid, my dad was like, Hey, jump in the car. We're going to go for a ride. And we drive from North Miami beach where we live down to the port of Miami. And, uh, we drive like the loop by the cruise ships and we pick up the same uh, cruise ship worker um, um, from um, who was, I guess, bringing in cash payments for equipment that my dad exported to Jamaica. The cruise ship worker was like basically delivering the cash to my dad in a paper bag. And then sometimes my dad would like, you know, give him like a box with like, um, you know, transmitter tubes or, you know, um, you know, a sundry, you know, parts for, you know, radio stations and whatever. So it's just kind of interesting that, uh, you know, here we are like picking up cash from a guy that, you know, and I, and I couldn't even tell you back then, I don't know what the, uh, CMIR reporting requirements were, uh, whether they even existed or not, but it was just kind of interesting, you know, it was, I, I guess, rudimentary, uh, smuggling. You know? Well, and th that's what was so funny to me. And, and it, more than that, interesting to me is that where you ended up and exactly where you ended up for a lot of your career down in Miami. Um, with that, learning that from your father, though, like you said, he kind of hit the ground running and it was always uh, make whoever you're going to be. It's going to be you that makes you who you are. 
can we talk about some of the life lessons that you learned from him, what you carried them forward in, in your education? And then because you had been to college and there was some stuff there, um, but, but in your job, you kind of kept striving until you reached the top. So can we talk about the things that he instilled in you? Yeah, I think, uh, uh, again, you know, I use the word courageous. There had, you had to be courageous to jump on a ship and go to another country. Uh, especially like right after World War II. Um, so I think, you know, I, I kind of looked at him and and would say to myself, well, if he could do it, I can do it. Um, if if uh, trying, trying something new, following your dream uh, was, I, I don't know that he'd ever, he ever talked to me about that, but I kind of saw it. It was more like by osmosis that I had this sense of uh, he's like a self-made man and and I can do it too and follow my own interests. Uh, I do know that um, they they were, my parents were interested in, uh, or they were hoping that I'd be interested in working for him, essentially like taking over that business. But, you know, I, I developed my own interests and, um, uh, followed my own, my own dream, I guess. But I think that, um, the work ethic, um, the, the, the courageousness and, um, you know, becoming your own man, um, uh, reflected onto me. Certainly. I mean, I, I, you didn't talk about it, but, but I, I kind of saw it and watched it and, and, and saw what you could, uh, do with yourself. And, and I have to say also that, you know, I, I kind of call myself uh, a big daydreamer. <laughs> and, uh, um, uh, and I think that's part of it is, is dreaming. You know, I was a, a competitive swimmer when I was a kid from age six to age 14. So, you know, when you're chasing that black line at the bottom of the pool, your mind wanders a lot. And I think I, I spent a lot of time daydreaming and thinking about things and how things could be and, and possibilities, whether for myself or, or just things that I was seeing. So, um, you know, I would say that uh, I'm a semi-professional daydreamer. <laughs> uh, and, I, and I think from that comes a lot of uh, creativity. And um, I think it um, set the stage for me, like in my career, where like sometimes you had to be very creative and, and come up with a way to uh, uh, counter the bad guys or, or you know, uh, get close to them without them realizing, you know, who you are. So uh, I, I think it all kind of builds on itself, you know. Talking about growing up, getting that from your father, you know, the time that you spent swimming, you, you graduate from high school, you go to college, um, you join a fraternity, which you told me, by the way, that you're still banned from. Um, we, we could possibly get into that, but you swam a lot in college and you started skipping classes and stuff like that. Where was that, where was that switch flipped on you where you were headed towards one direction and then you kind of broke off and started kind of doing your own thing? You know, I, th I think it's uh, freedom, um, being away from the household, um, you know, growing up in a very strict household, you know, we were expected to always uh, behave and be on our best behavior. And, um, 
you know, there wasn't a lot of talking in our household about like bad, bad things that may be happening in our family. Um, so, and the kids were kind of left out of uh, a lot of conversations. And, um, you know, my parents were very demanding uh, in grade school, high school, getting straight A's, etc. I mean, I pretty much fell into going to the University of Miami in Coral Gables, Florida, just because my sister was already going there. And my dad was able to pay uh, for our tuition. So um, although I have my suspicions about that as well, because I think my dad was um, <laughs> actually paying my sister and I a salary from his company that we essentially used um, for your college education for our, our tuition. So I guess he was trying to reduce his tax liability. So, you know, um, he's very creative in, in a sense. Um, but um, so I think when I got to the University of Miami, it was kind of like freedom. I was living on campus, uh, although, you know, it's like really the other side of Miami. It's not very far away. And um, I kind of like, was like a free range, you know, guy, you know, like starting to do things, uh, if I wanted to, or, 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 or not, you know, so, um, things, things kind of changed for me in college. Um, you know, I tried a bunch of different things. Like, uh, I met, um, the army ROTC, uh, captain. He was also, uh, like, swimming and training to do triathlons like me and he was like hey why don't you like you know come and uh, sign up for our bushmaster course you know this this semester and uh you know give it a go and you know so like i tried that and you know it was fun but um i really didn't see that that was a, a path for me that being said uh my second uncle uh on my mom's side um i'm glad you brought this up yeah, he, he uh, was part of the Bay of Pigs invasion and he was captured. So um, w once he was released with the others, I, I guess the, um, the CIA must have like offered them these like packages, uh, military careers, and he took it. And uh, he was in the Army, Army officer, uh, was in the Rangers and um, ended up, uh, you know, a couple times like talking to me about, Hey, you know, I could link you up with people and I, I could, you know, if you get your degree, I can uh, link you up with these like CIA recruiters. And so, you know, there was a lot of, uh, influence, uh, coming in from the outside and, and opportunities, I guess, but, but I was, uh, kind of just finding my own way. And, um, you know, when I started at university, I dropped out of uh, business administration. I kind of hated it. I was awful at math. I'm still awful at math. And um, dropped out of accounting, dropped out of business administration, was kind of just trying to find a new, uh, a new uh, program to be a part of. And then my roommate was like in this... Uh, uh, health and fitness management program as part of the school of education. And I was like, Oh, that sounds like fun. And, uh, you know, I, I like uh, swimming and racing, doing triathlons. Maybe that'll kind of like support my habit, you know? Um, so I, um, signed up and started taking classes in that program 
And, uh, you know, eventually that's, that's what I got my degree in was, a, a bachelor's of, sci- of science and education in health and fitness management. Although, uh, when I was a junior, um, I started working on the beach patrol as a lifeguard on Miami beach, uh, working full time. And, uh, that's when I kind of started seeing things that, uh, really caught my eye and, uh, you know, uh, I started things that I started to dream about, you know, possibilities for myself. When you see that, that, that doesn't really right then that doesn't light the law enforcement bug or does it because it's, it's not law enforcement in a sense, but you are kind of protecting over your on duty. Is, is that what's sending you down this road? Because so far up in your history, it doesn't even look like it's pointing towards law enforcement. No, not at all. Uh, you know, uh, so being a lifeguard, I was also a free diver and a spear fisherman. So um, my friend and I, high school friend and I, we had bought a runabout boat that we shared and we use it for water skiing and to go diving and spear fishing. And um, I started seeing all these like marine law enforcement boats and uh in particular the, the florida marine patrol which now they're called something else they're like the florida wildlife and conservation department but uh fmp the florida marine patrol we used to call them the uh the grouper troopers and uh uh you know they were like these guys in these police boats by themselves blasting you know here and there and stopping and checking boats and checking to see if you know we had you know taken uh, lobster legally and whatnot. And, uh, and so I started seeing those, uh, law enforcement agencies and then the Miami beach police department, which I worked for Miami beach, they had a, uh, police boat. So I started seeing them, uh, actually the beach patrol, we had our own like uh, 25 foot Mako that was like our patrol boat that we would uh, use as well. So I started seeing like all these boats and then, you know, I saw like the customs boats you know, heard the, the roar, the rumble of those uh, huge inboard outboard engines. And I was like, that is something that I could totally get into, you know, um, working outside, working on the water, you know, my love of the water. So that's what really drew me to it. And then um, I started doing, uh, well, uh, Metro Dade Public Safety Department, because back then, Miami-Dade County was called Metro-Dade County. And in the old days, it was the public safety department, not the police department. So I went on some ride-alongs with uh, Metro-Dade Public Safety. And uh, and I was like, wow, this is like a huge agency. Like they have a, a Marine unit. They have like an aviation unit. They have like SRT. They've got everything, you know, bomb squad. I'm like, this is the place that... Um, I should probably try to get into. Um, although I was like at that point starting to submit applications with all these different agencies. And then I just realized that I just needed to graduate from college. I just need to finish this degree so that I could be like a viable candidate for, uh, for an agency. Well, and you, you applied to multiple agencies, the Florida Marine patrol, uh, United States marshals, treasury enforcement, uh, yeah. I'm not sure the other, I guess Miami Dade, 
you you applied to multiple ones. Now you told me that it it ranged from easy to hard and and different stuff like that as you were going through the testing phase. But did you have an idea because you saw that it had so many things to do, the bomb, the aviation, everything. Did you want to head towards marine life? Because it seems like when you finally go with customs, that's what you head right over to do. Right. So um, so I knew like Florida Marine Patrol, that's direct, like right, in, right into like a marine law enforcement job. So I applied with them. Uh, I applied with uh, uh, Metro Dade. Because I knew that, well, after you do your time in patrol, then you can put in for these specialty units. So I was like, they're the biggest game in town. So I'm going to apply with those guys. So so I did. And I took the marshals test, which was really easy. I never heard back from the marshals whatsoever. I took the Treasury Enforcement Agency exam, which was for like IRS, Secret Service, ATF, Customs. I barely passed it. I got a, you had to get a 70. I got a 71.6. Um, I didn't expect to hear from them. But um, so I was kind of focused on like the Florida Marine Patrol, Metro Dade, you know, um, I was progressing through the Metro Dade, um, uh, you know, screening. And then when I got to the polygraph, I completely failed the polygraph. And uh, okay, yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk yeah. about failing the polygraph. So, of course, everybody knows it's taking a polygraph one it's a it's a stressful situation um what it's supposed to do is detect you know whether you're being truthful about situations that are going on they give you a set of baseline questions and stuff so i'm wondering what it is about that that you failed so badly right so i i i failed it because i was truthful uh there i wasn't uh <laughs> trying to deceive anybody but basically the polygrapher, everything was going well. And he asked me if I had ever used uh, anabolic steroids in my past. And I was like, oh shit. And, and I had uh, in college because my, my roommate was like a bodybuilder. And uh, you know, uh, long story short, I had taken uh, steroids uh, uh, for a short period of time. So yeah, I washed out of the polygraph because I told the truth. And essentially that was just like a, an applicant killer um, because uh, Miami was still reeling from the whole Miami River Cops thing and all those guys that were uh, ripping off drug loads and, and they, they, they killed a bunch of people uh, on the Miami River. Those cops had apparently been on steroids. So that was like a, a screening no-go. Like if you if you had any history of that, you weren't getting into a department in Miami at that point. So you think that that was a specific question that they put in there was about that? Because, I mean, we're talking 1985, 1986. We're, we're, we've talked to some other guys. We're at the height of Miami Vice. We're at the height of the cocaine cowboys. All of these things where there's so many drugs that they could have been talking about coming in, but they specifically put the steroid one in there. Do you think that was set in there to specifically rule out anyone that could possibly bring, you know, discredit back to them again? Yeah, I think so. I think they were just trying to make sure that uh, they cleaned house and that it didn't happen again. Uh, you know, they didn't want anybody on the juice and uh, or or that had been on it, you know, because I guess if, if you're on it, 
once, maybe you'll be on it again in the future. So, uh, so yeah, that, that killed my, um, my viability with uh, Metro Dade. Um, and then I went, uh, up to Tallahassee to the state Capitol, um, for the Florida Marine Patrol's assessment. And I, and I did pretty good because, you know, uh, uh, I think I had all the makings of what they were looking for. You know, like they had like a, we had to do a run, you know, I, I did pretty well on the run. We had to do a swim. I did really well on the swim. Um, we had to, um, uh, write an essay. And the question was, why would it be beneficial for a law enforcement agency to have a health and fitness program? Well, I had just written a term paper for that in college. So like, I, I totally freaking aced that. And, uh, so I, uh, had a good sense that, um, things were going to progress along with the Florida Marine Patrol. And that's where I'd probably end up working. That being said, you know, when I was a Miami beach lifeguard, uh, we were like the second highest paid beach patrol in the country. And, uh, back then, you know, we, we would laugh, but we were making like, uh, I was making like $14,000 a year, which was a lot of money, like in 1985. And, um, so, but the Marine patrol didn't pay much more than being a Miami beach lifeguard. So I, I kind of knew that going in, but you know, I just so much wanted that Marine law enforcement job. And then out of the blue, one day I'm, I'm sitting in the lifeguard stand and the Lieutenant gets on the radio and he calls me and he says, Hey, during your afternoon break, you need to call this special agent from the custom service at the following number. And here I am in the lifeguard stand. Like I don't even have a, a pen or a piece of paper. And I'm like scrambling around. I grab a pencil and, I'm writing the phone number down like on a bandage box. And uh, and I call this uh, special agent during my afternoon break. And um, he's like, hey, we need to interview you for this job. Uh, you're still interested, aren't you? And I'm like, uh, yeah, customs. I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, uh, he goes, okay, well, uh, we need to do an interview. And, um, uh, and I'm like, well, when? And he's like, well, tomorrow. And I, and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm calling in sick at the beach and uh, I'm going to go do this interview. And, and I went and did the interview and it wasn't anything that I thought it was going to be. It wasn't like about like my aptitude, my interest, you know, my perspectives on things. It was just like a background interview. You know, you try and have you ever tried to overthrow the U S government? Have you ever used, you know, marijuana and cocaine? Luckily they didn't ask the steroids question. Yeah, no shit. Uh, uh, <laughs> and, um, you know, all of those kinds of background questions. And, uh, and then that was it. And it was interesting because it was like a guy who was interviewing me and another guy was like watching me while watching me respond. And that was the extent of it. And so then, let me ask you though, and this is where it got interesting for, remember I said at the beginning, I'm going to try and tie everything together. This is what I was talking about when I talked about your grandfather and your father. So you got a grandfather from Siberia that went to China, that had a son that moved to Paris, that moved to Cuba. You had the Bay of Pigs invasion. You had all these different things. They're interviewing you for this. Does any of that come up? Because we're talking about the 80s. The Cold War is in full effect. I mean, it's a it's a thing that is on everybody's mind. Did that ever come up in any of the questioning? You know. It, it did. It didn't. I mean, I, I, I wish it did, you know, but it, it, uh, it just didn't. I mean, it just seemed like there was, um, that wasn't 
like a concern or that wasn't the purpose of recruiting me. You know, like I would say that I was hired solely based on my SF-71, which was like this standard government application form and my test score uh, and this like background interview. There was there was nothing more more to it. Uh, and it's kind of funny because, uh, you know, when you're in the feds, especially in the modern day, we have these electronic uh, personnel files and um, we can look at like all of our personnel documents. And I was logged in there one day and I was like, oh, let me hit the back button to the first page. And lo and behold, there is my handwritten job application. I guess they scanned them all in and it was in my personnel file still. And I'm looking at it. it, I mean, there wasn't much, much on there, you know, like I'm a lifeguard with a PE degree, you know, like there's not much, much there and they hired me. But, but what I've come to find out is that it was mass hiring at that point. They needed to bring a lot of people on because of the, the drug war in South Florida and other places around the country. So, uh, you know, it's like, all right, he, he meets the uh, minimum. So give him a job. And, and that's what was so funny to me was, cause you say that it's, you know, personal and they're asking you, have you ever tried to overthrow the government? Have you ever done all these things? And then when it comes to where you would look at it now, looking at it in the law enforcement career you've had, okay. You've been all over the world. You've done all kinds of things in law enforcement. You're doing the interview of you. Is that something that you're going to look into? Uh, knowing what I know now, yeah. yeah, I mean, I would, I would ask more, more prying questions. Absolutely. I mean, because not, that, not that I was a security risk or anything like that. Uh, absolutely. But being in your law enforcement brain now, you looking back on it, seeing it from 30,000 feet, you've got to go, wow, they really skipped over a lot of stuff and brought me on. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if, if they would have asked me, well, if you ask me today about my dad, I mean, my dad, when he was like working, uh, selling uh, radio broadcast equipment in Columbia, he tells me that, you know, he was at this like Columbia National Broadcasters Convention and they brought in the uh, uh, the uh, Rodriguez Orihuela brothers as like these big like philanthropists <laughs> to this like conference. And they're like the keynote speakers. And, and they're at like the cocktail reception afterwards. And, you know, it's just kind of nuts that, uh, that, you know, all of that was going on or, or I guess, you know, in my background or touch these things that actually meant something like down the road. You know? Yeah. Okay. So you get on with customs, you, um, you go to Fletzy, you, you get it, you're assigned to the boats, the boat crews, correct? Yeah, back then it was funny because I really didn't know what I was hired as a customs investigator and I didn't know like how you got onto the customs boats, like how that even worked. And, and I thought like, okay, it's probably like Metro Dade, like you come in, you know, you do your time and, and then you can get onto the specialty assignment. And the first day I walk in and I'm wearing like a jacket and tie and dress shoes and this guy that fetches me out of the lobby is like, He's like, hey, uh, Pete, do you do you uh, own any boat shoes? And I was like, oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've, I've got boat shoes. He goes, okay, well, tomorrow dress down because you're going to be working on the boats. And I was like, what? 
like, holy shit, like I hit the lottery. Like uh, I'm starting out on the boats. It's exactly what I wanted to do. But I really didn't know like the path into that job, you know? Yeah, so, you, you kind of fell into it uh, with the way you okay. did it. But I want to talk about your first boss that you had there. He was a, a, a former SF guy. Um, and when you had gotten back from Fletzy, uh, he kind of took you. Now, he treated you. Um, I'll let you describe how he treated you. But you said that you learned everything you know now from him. Yeah, I mean, everything I know about marine operations. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I learned from him navigation, operating boats. Um how can I say having balls, being aggressive, uh, because when you're boarding boats, you know, you're in an environment that sometimes very, it's very small, you know, compact, you know, I, I sometimes describe it. It's like doing a car stop and getting in the back seat with the people that you're stopping. <laughs> I thought of it so, that way. And, and, and they have like, uh, fillet knives and, and, and firearms and God knows what. So, um, yeah, really, I, I owe everything to him. His name is Joe Goulet. Uh, he's an Army SF guy. He's uh, salty, surly, but taught me everything that I know um, uh, about uh, marine operations. And, uh, you know, aside from what I learned at, you know, the Marine Law Enforcement Training Program at Fletzy that I ended up going to uh, later on. But it's interesting because Joe, he was my first supervisor. And... Um, uh, at the tail end of my time in Miami, I went back to the Marine group and he had gone back there as well. And so we worked together basically as, uh, as contemporaries, uh, in 1997, when I was, uh, uh, in my last year in Miami. So we're talking about 87 right now. What kind yeah. of trouble are you seeing in 87? We've already kind of talked about the cocaine cowboys being around, but what was it set up? as you jump into this, because if you could jump into anything headlong, it would be Miami in the eighties on the boats and smuggling operations going on. So can you kind of set the landscape for what it was? Yeah, basically, you know, you had all these uh, Colombian organizations that were bringing in uh, Coke loads, perhaps maybe still they're bringing in marijuana, uh, but certainly marijuana was coming from Jamaica, but it was all coming in through the Bahamas staging in the Bahamas and then uh, coming into the United States, specifically uh, South Florida, the Florida Keys, uh, some on the Gulf Coast, the Southwest Coast of Florida, uh, you know, like below Naples towards the Everglades. But it was um, it was the time to be there, you know, uh, go fast boats, you know, just loaded to the gills with bales of marijuana, uh, multiple boats running together, you know, trying to bring in loads. And, uh, and then there was us um, going out on these patrols. Uh, Customs had this uh, Blue Lightning Operations Center, which they had like uh, aerostat radar that was uh, initially being used to um, pick up air, air targets that were coming uh, from down south that were airdropping to boats. Uh, but then they, uh, I guess, tweaked some of those radars for like maritime. There was uh, radars on top of condominiums uh, near the various inlets in South Florida. So like, they had this uh, radar picture uh, to a certain distance offshore. And sometimes they would 
uh, you know, cue us to a target. Uh, sometimes not. More often than not, the targets weren't good. A lot of the work really uh, involved us uh, taking our boats to areas or choke points where we knew the smugglers were maybe coming through and uh, running our own radar or basically being shut down and, and listening for them, uh, listening for their engines and then uh, using radar and night, and night vision to uh, you know, chase them down and interdict them. So uh, lots of was happening, especially out of Bimini, which is 47 nautical miles from Miami to the east. There's the Bimini Island chain. And in Bimini, you know, it was like a hornet's nest of, of uh, Bahamians that were uh, smugglers. So a lot of stuff was going on uh, 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 through Bimini. Uh, but it wasn't just, um, you know, Bahamians, you know, they, they were part of the picture. But then there was a lot of, you know, Americans, Cuban-Americans that were involved in, in running fast boats from the Bahamas to South Florida. Also, there was then also... Uh, uh, boats that would have uh, hidden compartments uh, where, and the hidden compartments were typically used for coke loads, uh, harder to see, you know, but then there was always some pretty uh, good telltale, telltale signs, you know, at hidden compartments, boats that had like a, a tacky deck, recent fiberglass work, boats that you couldn't see into the bilge, um, you know, typically on a boat, you're going to have like an inspection plate so you can you know, see through the deck and see towards the gas tank and, and other things. So, um, you know, there, there was like everything was going on. So let's do an average and then we're going to go kind of squeeze in on it. An average marijuana load that's coming in. Now, if I'm understanding you correctly, you're making stops every day. You are taking down traffickers every single day you go out on patrol. Well, s some of us are. I, I have to say that Two weeks out of the academy, um, we uh, so so uh, when I was working for Joe Goulet, we were basically on, on what was called Marine Three. So it was like third shift, working uh, eleven p.m. to seven a.m. So we we're like midnights, graveyards, and um, so two weeks out of the academy, I'm out uh, working a shift. And it's about 3 a.m. We get alerted by the Blue Lightning Operations Center that the North Miami Police Marine Unit has called them and says that he just chased uh, several uh, Midnight Express Go Fast boats out of Hallover Inlet that, tr that came in the inlet. But then when he tried to chase them down, they turned around and they exited the inlet. And uh, he pursued them for a bit, but then he's he uh, terminated his pursuit. So uh, we responded up there uh, from downtown uh, through the ICW, got a quick you know, brief from him as to what he saw. And then we just went charging um, uh, 090 uh, eastward out of the inlet. We're talking to uh, the operations center. They're like, yeah, we have a, a target that's going also uh, eastbound. Uh, we have him on radar and, uh, you know, he's way ahead of you, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's tracking, uh, eastbound. So we kept, uh, uh, pursuing him. I mean, we obviously we didn't have him in sight, but we just knew that, uh, we could be in a situation where he's going offshore to like dump the load. So we may be able to apprehend him while he's doing that, or perhaps, uh, you know, 
he's going to run out of fuel. So we're going to be able to bust him because, you know, he's come from somewhere in the Bahamas and perhaps, you know, he's uh, low on fuel at this point now that he's uh, made it to the U.S. So, you know, we kept running eastward. At a certain point, he dropped off a radar and uh, operations center said, yeah, we don't have him anymore, but he's last we had him, he's going east. So we kept going east, and at a certain point, we decided to, like, uh, uh, shut down and just kind of see if we can hear him. And, uh, and as uh, the sun starts coming up, a Coast Guard helicopter overflies us, and he's headed eastbound. And uh, so we're like, all right, the Coasties are out, like, looking, so maybe they're going to see bales in the water at this point, you know. And um, as it got brighter, we decided that, all right, let's just turn around and go back. We'll probably find a bunch of bales in the water and uh, we'll recover it and just go back to the office. And as we turn around and start heading west, I look south and I see them. They're like dead in the water and uh, like on the horizon. It's almost like a mirage, but we can see them. And uh, they obviously saw us because uh, as we turned towards them, they got up on plane and they continued eastbound. So we continued eastbound as well. Uh, we're chasing them, but we're still, you know, probably uh, a half mile behind them. And uh, we see the Coast Guard helicopter basically must have seen us and basically starts uh, doing like low altitude harassment uh, on those guys. And, uh, and as we know now, I uh, found out that, you know, they were taking pictures, uh, photography, uh, aerial photography of them. And as we're approaching Bimini, so at the time, we were also running an operation with um, our Bahamian, uh, one of our Bahamian counterparts, the Royal Bahamas Defense Force. So we had a base in Cat Key, which was uh, about 10 miles south of Bimini. And uh, so we had boats stationed over there and we do interdiction patrols from there. But um, so we, as we're approaching Bimini, we see one of our boats that's based in Bimini is like up on the north end of the island. And they see us and they start running south. And that was my boss, uh, Joe Goulet, who was doing a TDY over there. Uh, and another guy from our uh, Key West office they're running south as we're running eastward uh, towards the harbor entrance. And there's, when you go into Bimini, there's like this long sandbar. So you have to go around the sandbar and, and at these range markers and then turn left and go up into the harbor, go north. Well, uh, Joe and this other uh, uh, guy that he's working with, they cut across the sandbars through what's called suicide cut, where there's actually a hole in the sandbar and you can only go through it when there's enough water, otherwise it's like a ground. They go through suicide cut and essentially they get in front of the boat that we're chasing. So now we're all like on the harbor <laughs> channel. And as, as we're coming closer to the harbor, all of a sudden we see this like uh, Mako center console boat comes out of the harbor. You got, you got to describe what that is though. A, a Mako is like a center console fishing boat, you know, 25 foot long with, um, uh, you know, an outboard engine center console. There's two Bahamians on that boat and they basically try to get in front of our other boat, which is one of these like blue thunders. 
And Joe and our other guy, uh, Paul Lehman, they just run those guys over. over. Uh, I mean, the, the last thing I remember seeing as we went around what would be a collision um, is our Blue Thunders completely on top of that Mako and our Blue Thunders uh, outdrives are out of the water and you can see the propeller spinning. And we continue chasing these guys into the harbor. They stop because um, at that point, you know, uh, it was going to go from bad to worse or even worse and worse. And uh, they gave up and uh, we sacked them up and took them into custody. Uh, that being said, Joe and Paul, who were on our Bahamian-based boat, did not have a Bahamian rider with them. So basically we have a bunch of like US law enforcement agencies making this interdiction and arrest, you know, in uh, Bahamian territory. So we quickly realized, oh, and actually the, the guys that got run over, they jumped in the, they jumped in the water, uh, like simultaneous to the collision. And uh, they were fished out of the water and we brought them to a dock and uh, turned them over to some Bahamian law enforcement that were there. Because obviously, like, we woke up the whole town, you know, in, in the harbor when all of this happened. And uh, we uh, grabbed our two American guys that were on this 37-foot uh, Midnight Express. It was empty, so they had dumped the load. But what we knew is that um, we knew that they had dumped the load somewhere because uh, those Midnight Expresses had these uh, through-hole scuppers. So basically, uh, water would rush, any water that would get in the boat would run out the back of the boat into the sea. And um, you could see that they had like this raw water pump, electric pump that was still running. And there was a big brush uh, on the deck. So they were, they had, basically when we saw them, they had already dumped the load and they were scrubbing down the deck to make sure that there weren't any like you know, marijuana seeds or marijuana debris, you know, on their boat. And uh, so we uh, sacked up these guys and we just brought them back to Miami uh, with their boat. And, uh, you know, we get back to the dock and uh, lo and behold, all of our other customs units and Coast Guard units had found all of this marijuana in the ocean. It was uh, 12,000 pounds that they and another boat were trying to smuggle in. That other boat was found like abandoned offshore. Um, and it appears that either somebody picked up the operator of that boat or maybe he swam to, sh swam to shore, you know, who knows. But, uh, but yeah, that was two weeks in the, into the job. So uh, for me, it kind of set the tone for my career. You know, it's kind of like pedal to the metal. Um, shit, if we can do this, like, violate the sovereignty of this other country and violate their laws and nobody's getting fired i'm like well i guess uh you know it's probably pretty pretty hard to get fired uh from the custom service if you're a winner you know if, if you're a winner and you produce results so a lot of questions come up from that you explained a lot of boats and stuff but what are we talking about when you're chasing them what kind of speed are we looking at going across the water um, some of the faster go fast boats can do like 70, you know, I would say that some of our boats, uh, we were lucky if they would do 50, uh, that, that's the reality of it. I mean, we, well, later on in our time, um, 
you know, over the years, uh, our boats have improved. And uh, so, you know, maybe some of them are pushing, you know, 60 miles an hour, but that's, that's pretty fast when you're on the water. You know, yeah, to be ab- going that absolutely. So with this one, say that again, especially in a heavy sea, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so with this one, it starts at three o'clock in the morning. What time do you finish up uh, in Bimini? Well, it's, it's, it's like, it's, uh, it's dawn, you know? Um, so we're talking five, six, seven hours into this. Well, I, I would say that, uh, it's dawn. So we're talking, yeah. I mean, probably about, uh, probably about four hours at that point, you know, it's summertime. Okay. Uh, so you, you get these guys, you've already spent four hours chasing them, everything. The load has been dropped. You bring them back. What are you thinking though? Uh, being a new guy, because I know in law enforcement, when you very first start out and you spent so much time trying to catch these guys and then you get there and yeah, you catch the guys, but there's nothing there to take back with you. Are you defeated at all? Are you thinking it was just fun to go do this? What is it? Because I know when you very first start in this job, everything is exciting. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was, uh, what I signed up for, right. It was totally exciting. Uh, but that being said, the fact that they were empty didn't matter uh, because we knew somebody would find some marijuana, right? So we would be able to basically put put the load on these guys, you know, uh, put the case together. A case could be put together. Also, you know, uh, as customs officers, we have certain authorities and certain laws that, like, if you run from us, we can seize your boat. Uh, so, uh, you know, if we didn't get the um, recover any marijuana, they, they were still losing the boat, you know. So that's kind of part of the the drug wars that you may not get um, a load every time, but you may disrupt them. You may uh, take you know assets and capabilities away from them. Uh, so you know that's just kind of part of the whole the whole program. You know, everything isn't the perfect perfect uh, you know dope case. You know where you catch right. them handed you know you basically uh take what you can get you know yeah absolutely you have characterized this as the best chase of your entire 31 year career um well i i would say that it probably wasn't the best chase oh okay Uh, no it would be um what set the tone for my career but it was a chase like none other at the time okay so let's talk before we move on Best chase of your career? Best chase of my career, I would say that uh, 1997, um, I'm back in the Marine Group. Uh, We're working these Bahamian smugglers again. And um, one of our, we're we're basically going out like on a cold patrol one night, a bunch of our boats. Um, uh, No, actually, let let me back up. We had information. So basically somebody uh, let us know that a certain smuggler was coming across that night. So we were basically going out to find them. One of our boats uh, finds them. Uh, Guy turns around. He's going back to uh, Bimini. It's like a 27-foot twin outboard go-fast boat. There's uh, four people. No, there's four. Yeah, there's four people on board. Uh, when the 
chase starts. Uh, one of our boats chases them probably like halfway back to, to Bimini, you know, like 20 something miles offshore. And um, bad guys, all of a sudden they slow to um, what we would call like uh, like full clutch ahead. And, and what we came to find out is they developed a vacuum in one of their fuel lines for one of the outboards. So they're only able to run on one. So they are continuing their flight, but they're like on one, it's pegged, but their boat is like bow high, right? Uh, because they can't get it, they can't get it on plane. And um, so our guys are radioing to the rest of us, hey, you know, uh, uh, you know, we're chasing so-and-so, and, -so, and I, I don't want to say his name because, uh, you know, um, he's a Bahamian smuggler, well-known, notorious uh, smuggler. We're chasing him. He's now throwing, um, uh, it's, it's like a slow pursuit. It would be like the OJ chase, right? You know, it's like a slow, <laughs> slow pursuit. And he's radioing to us that they're throwing luggage overboard. So we know it, the luggage probably contains some kind of contraband, coke or marijuana. And uh, so I'm responding to the scene. I'm the passenger in one of our boats. My partner is driving. We're responding to the scene. And we had, uh, in our time, we had developed all kinds of what I would call unconventional tactics to stop people uh, when they were fleeing from us. So if you had outboard engines and you were fleeing from us and we could catch up to you, we'll crash into your outboards to disable your boat. So uh, that was one of our tactics. And um, and crashing into them with our the bow of our boat really wouldn't damage our boat much. You know, it was more like cosmetic if, if we did something like that. So I'm responding into the area uh, with my partner and he decides that he's going to take a shot at this bad guy's outboards on the first pass. And um, he misses and he puts our boat into a sharp turn. And basically we end up doing like a 180 and uh, place ourselves in front of this bad guy. And the bad guy crashes into us. But at that point, I had gone forward onto the deck of our boat with a shotgun, with a Remington 870, because I was just like, all right, um, I may use disabling fire and shoot at his outboard engines, which we weren't supposed to do. But I was like, I'm going to put myself in a position. If I need to, I will. And um, bad guy crashes into us, and that boat missed me by two feet to the point DJ that I still don't know to this day whether the boat's hull knocked the shotgun out of my hands or if I dropped it and the shotgun just flew and went overboard into the ocean. We never recovered that shotgun. So I, I can't tell you, but I basically saw the boat crash into us. I dropped down to the deck and I look up and I'm looking at the, the hull, the bottom of that boat. Um, it's over top of me. That boat slides off of ours. And by golly, 
they fucking keep running. They keep going. <laughs> at a, at a slow, they're still going slow though, right? Still, still slow. It's like the OJ chase, slow. They keep going. And so I get up onto my feet and I'm, I'm pissed at the bad guys. I'm pissed at my partner, you know, for, uh, for what happened. And all of a sudden we hear help, help. And I'm like, looking at my partner, I'm like, holy shit, somebody fell in the water. And uh, we use our spotlight and we're looking around and we see a guy and it's one of the smugglers off the boat. He, during the collision, he fell off and he's in the water. So we, so I'm like, well, we got one of them, you know, like now we got three more that we need to go sack up. And uh, our other boat continued the pursuit, you know, um, and basically uh, we bring that one guy on board, you know, we put a life jacket on and we handcuff him. And uh, I told, told my partner, I'm like, Hey, catch up to the, to the chase. I'm mean, like, we, we, this has got to end here. And, and I told him, I said, pull up alongside. And as soon as you're alongside, I'm going on board. Like, even if we're, we're all still moving, I'm like, I've had enough of this shit. And uh, so we pull on board and, we pull alongside and I jump on board and immediately the driver of the boat is like yelling at me. He's like, get the fuck off my boat. We're going back to Bimini, you know, fuck you. And I'm like, no, shut off your boat. I'm like, we're finished. Like shut off your boat. And he's like, no, fuck you. And, uh, <laughs> but then when I'm on the boat, I, I'm looking and I'm like, so there's a guy behind the wheel driving. There's a guy, a, a younger guy sitting on this bench seat in the back, but then, there's still the third person's missing. Like, where's this other person? So I'm thinking, shit, did two guys go overboard? And we only got, you know, we only rescued and arrested one. There's still one out there. And as I'm arguing with this, um, the driver of the boat, I'm looking on the on the, the console, which would be like the dash, you know, but on a boat, it's a console for the keys. Because all I have to do is shut the keys off. And, and I'm like, it's dark because again, we're, uh, what I failed to say is like, it's nighttime. We're talking, it's like one in the morning. We're 20 something miles off of Miami. It's dark. Um, I don't have a flashlight at that point, but so I'm looking on the console where are the keys. Cause I know all I have to do is turn the keys off and I'm slapping at things that I think are the keys. And I grab this one thing and it's like a, a phone charger, like in a lighter plug. And I, throw that to the deck and I'm like looking around. I can't see where the keys are. And the kid that was on the back seat, he gets up and he's like, and he yells at me, like charges at me. And I turn and I just like, I throw a punch, but like I punch early and I hit him like in his Adam's apple, like, you know, the, the top of his, the top of his chest, like right in his Adam's apple and knock him down. And at that point I'm like, all right, I've just had enough with this, uh, this, uh, guy that's driving the boat and I just turn and I crank back and I just give him like a temple punch and I just knock him out. And, uh, and that was it. The funny thing was, is that um, he was leaning up against where the keys were because they were part of the, the throttle, you know, like some of these Evan rude type throttles, like the key, the ignition key is part of the throttle. So he was blocking it with his body. So I would have never gotten to the keys uh, but even the funnier part of the story is that this particular smuggler is Bahamian smuggler uh, had one leg and um, 
he was famous for it because he had been involved in this motorcycle accident, had one of his legs amputated below the knee. So after I knock him out, <clears throat> I'm looking around on the deck as I'm um, um, cuffing him. I see this wooden leg with this Nike sneaker on the deck. And um, so, you know, you can only imagine that later on, everybody was like, oh man, he hit him. He punched him so hard that he knocked his leg off and all this stuff, you know, all the, all the stories. But um, the, the truth was that he would take it off when he would drive the boat because he, otherwise he couldn't sit in this little uh, chair at the, at the helm station because that mahogany leg, you know, didn't articulate. It was just like a straight thing. But, uh, like a real yeah, iron you know, leg. Yeah, wooden leg. And so, uh, yeah, some of our other guys recovered all the dope, you know, it was marijuana. And, uh, you know, again, sacked them up, sacked up all the dope and um, brought them back to Miami and prosecuted them all. So, oh, but what I was going to say, the third guy. Okay, yeah. Third guy was not in the water. As I'm cuffing these other guys, our, our other boat that initiated the pursuit, they go, hey, there's one down below. Uh, in the cabin. And I was like, what are you like serious? And so, um, at that point I open up like the little uh, cabin door and, uh, stick my head in there. And it's a 14 year old kid. The son of the guy that fell in the water was, uh, down below, you know, shaking like a leaf wearing some mirrored sunglasses, you know, and, oh. uh, we dragged him out of there and sacked him up too. So, well, that's what you want is mirrored sunglasses at one o'clock in the morning. So exactly. moving away from Miami now, do you ever think that you're going to leave Miami? Because I don't think you could have taken a more different turn in your career to where you went. Yeah. Well, um, uh, you know, I would have to say that, you know, I, I started seeing the country because my uh, girlfriend who now my wife was a flight attendant. So uh, we did quite a bit of traveling in our off time. And uh, we saw the Pacific Northwest and we pretty much like fell in love with it, you know, and uh, realized that, you know, we were uh, skiers, we were doing some mountaineering, we were doing some backpacking and uh, backcountry backpacking and camping and stuff. And, and we realized that we wanted to be somewhere where the great outdoors was our backyard. And, uh, Believe me, I, I mean, I, I had enough of South Florida at that point, spent my whole life there. Um, I, frankly, I never lived outside of South Florida until I went to Fletzy. So um, now I was kind of seeing the rest of the country and um, we kind of put our sights on the Pacific Northwest, you know, that uh, that's somewhere where, where we would want to uh, be together. Well, and I don't just mean more different from of course because you're going from miami sun beaches the smuggling there is coming through boats off the islands but i'm talking about just general weather uh different political environment i mean it couldn't be more different so when you set your sights on there and you go there are you ready to kind of slow down because i feel like looking at it before you tell the next thing of what you did Looking at it, you've got to be thinking, all right, it's going to be a little slower than what was going on in Miami. Um, so yeah. are you looking to kind of slow down in your career? Are you looking to kind of start taking it in? Or what's going on as you move there? 
Yeah, I'm, I'm looking to, um, I mean, Miami is now becoming like a monster. There's a lot of people there. Um, I'd worked pretty hard my 10 years while I was there. I also was assigned at the Joint Terrorism Task Force. And we were working all of these uh, anti-Castro uh, militant groups and uh, using our um, customs export uh, enforcement authority to uh, uh, disrupt a lot of these uh, activities that these guys were engaged in. Uh, so uh, I, wherever I worked, I was always very active. Um, you know, prior to that, right around the time when I got married, I, I was a primary undercover agent on a um, uh, large-scale coke smuggling case where we, uh, uh, I was the primary, you know, dealing with these like Cuban-American um, lobster uh, fishermen that were smugglers and uh, and a Colombian guy. And as posing as uh, the boyfriend of, of this woman, she... Um, she was an informant that was trying to work off a of beef because her husband had gotten sacked up by by us on a on a different deal. So now she's trying to work uh, uh, work for us to uh, get him like a five k you know sentence reduction. So um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I was involved in a lot of stuff, and I, I think I I chased everything that I every opportunity that was available to me i chased it and i put put all of myself into it and and i think it was because of my desire to to uh experience all these different things and, and kind of uh you know make something of this uh opportunity so um i wouldn't say that i worked myself into the ground but um uh i i, I worked pretty hard uh, and I was just looking for something different, you know, kind of like South Florida's like been there, done that, you know, how many more reefs can I dive on? How many more fish can I spear? Did spent a lot of time on the water. Yeah. You know, grew up there. Um, you know, it's kind of like finished with it in, in a way, you know, now that I saw what other parts of the country had to offer. Uh, and, and I kind of knew that, because I was like a self-made guy that uh, I could probably succeed anywhere I landed just as long as I kept working hard, you know, and dedicated myself to my work. I, I think more than that, though, you've already been married once, you've been divorced, you're dating your now wife. Is it taking a toll on your personal life? Um, I think, I think, um, the personal life, it just, we didn't, in, we didn't, uh, envision having a family in South Florida, you know, okay. for, for everything that we knew about South Florida, you know? Um, okay. so, uh, it was really more the environment than, than the work because, you know, when I showed up in Blaine, it was pedal to the metal, you know, in, in Blaine, Absolutely. Washington. And, and we, we did some things in Blaine that have never been done, you know, in federal law enforcement. We were the first people to do it. So, um, you know, I, I think it was just uh, is more about the environment. Just just kind of had enough of, of Florida. Been there, done that. You know, time to go try something else. Um, you know, and uh, 
and, and I, I would say that, you know, I, I got as much out of uh, my career in Miami than, than I could. And I think I was actually pushing my luck towards the end. Uh, I'd been very successful. And then, you know, you, you get involved in a boat crash and uh, you um, get involved in some other boat chases that, that involve crashes and you see things and you, you, you know, get hit by the splatter of gunfire. And, you know, it's like, well, I think that your, your luck's going to run out, you know, uh, at a certain point, I thought, you know, in my mind. So it was time to, uh, try something different, uh, or try somewhere different. Okay. So going on that, so we go to Blaine, um, but you say it's right back to pedal to the metal. So it, it seems very, it seems kind of two ways when you say it. It's confusing because you say that you see these things, it's time to step away from that, but then you get the Blaine and you go right back into it. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think it's the challenge, you know. I, I, I guess, you know, maybe because like I was a childhood swimmer, like I've always been very competitive and, um, and swimming is really about outdoing yourself, you know. It's you and your lane. And, and maybe that's like a mentality that I've always had is that what am I going to do now to outdo myself? So, yeah, I get to Blaine. It's kind of a sleepy office, as my uh, old special agent in charge had told me. Uh, she was shocked that I even wanted to go there. Um, and, and she even offered, she's like, because she was, she was leaving um, Miami, uh, Bonnie Tischler, she's going to be the SAC. Uh, she was the SAC in Miami. She was going to be the assistant commissioner for, uh, for investigations in uh, headquarters. And when I told her that I was interested in going to Blaine, Washington, she's like, what, Peter Ostrowski, are you like out of your mind? That's like a nowhere office. There's nothing going on there. You'll never get promoted if you go up there. Why don't you come with me and a few other people that I'm, <clears throat> that I'm taking to headquarters and, and, you know, you'll, you'll be able to, uh, you know, progress in your career. And I was like, you know, thanks, but no thanks. You know, no, no, don't mean any disrespect, but, you know, I kind of want to, you know, get, get to a <clears throat> different kind of <clears throat> place to live, you know, don't want to be in DC. I want to go to like a small town environment. And uh, <clears throat> lo and behold, 30 days later, I get a directed reassignment letter to Blaine, which is like unheard of. When you're a GS-13, you know, typically paid moves are only for people that are getting promoted or, or uh, going to headquarters. So uh, I got a paid move to Blaine to the sleepy little 16-man office, uh, which back then uh, you had to compete to get a GS-13, right? So everybody, you know, can make GS-12 just by having time off, but you had to compete to get a 13. So here I am, I arrive in Blaine, Washington, and I'm taking a spot that one of those guys could get promoted into. So I didn't get a very warm welcome when I got to Blaine, uh, but, um, you know, I ended up, uh, it's kind of interesting because there was two groups in Blaine, the drug group and the non-drug group. And uh, I got assigned to the non-drug group, which is fine because I'd work, you know, exports and you know, other things other than narcotics and, um, South Florida. So, but then I was, a, then I was told, 
oh yeah, you're in the non-drug group, but you and your partner, uh, Andy Poor, who Andy was a former customs inspector, you guys are going to respond to every drug seizure at the land border ports of entry so that the drug guys can work long-term cases. And so on its face, that sounded like a shit assignment, right? Like an awful assignment, but it was actually an awesome assignment because we, we got to do like all of these like interviews, uh, controlled deliveries, cold convoys. I mean, it was just like action packed uh, work. And, you know, and our mentality was that if the customs inspectors at the border caught somebody, like our job was like, all right, they did their job. They got the guy and they got the load. Now our job is to get the guys that this guy is working with, you know, downstream. Where's his boat going to? Who else is involved? So, so we did. I, I mean, I've lost count the amount of uh, control deliveries that we did uh, from our uh, work at the ports of entry there in uh, the Blaine area. And back then, that was the beginning of the uh, BC Bud days. So the Canadians were uh, making, uh, you know, their uh, domestically grown, high potency marijuana. So, you know, it was kind of interesting. So I get there in 97, a big load is like five pounds of BC Bud, you know, which its value was like at 3,000, you know. I mean, what I would say, like conservatively, some people say, oh, no, it was fetching like 6,000 in L.A. I, 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 I don't know. I don't believe that. But I would say 3,000 is a good number. So, uh, you know, five, five pounds, you know, uh, you know, was worth something. And then, you know, the, the, the size of the loads just started growing, you know, exponentially. You know, uh, the next thing we know, we find a hidden compartment in a pickup truck, 70 pounds. Next thing is uh, commercial trucks, you know, with hundreds of pounds of BC bud, you know, concealed in the trucks. So, um, uh, you know, it, it certainly was the place to be uh, working. Um, good, it was a good assignment. Well, so what I want to ask you, though, a way I think that a lot of the general public looks at the border, they see the southern border. Uh, and they think, you know, that's where it's, that's where the noise comes from. Uh, they, they know that drugs are coming across there. Then you look at Miami where you were, they know about the cocaine coming in. No one really thinks about the, the Canadian border up North. Do right. you think that when you start seeing this marijuana grow exponentially, it's because these smugglers are thinking the border's oh. not that covered it's going to be a lot easier to get this across. What do you think the reason was that it grew so quickly? Because as we'll talk about with Operation Frozen Timber, it grew like crazy overnight. Yeah, I, I think it was just the opportunity. <clears throat> what you got to understand about Blaine, Washington. And, and so British Columbia was like the breadbasket for all of this, this marijuana. That's where it was all being grown. British Columbia also is festooned with like all of these criminal organizations. You've got the Hells Angels, you've got uh, Persian organizations, you've got Vietnamese organizations at the time. Uh, uh, so there's all kinds of criminals there who've always been involved in some kind of trafficking activity. So 
I think what they found was that BC Bud was uh, low risk, high profit for them. The border isn't as secure as the southern border. Uh, literally, there—I mean, there is no border fence. It's pretty much um, or any fencing whatsoever. Uh, there are some spots uh, on the border between Washington and British Columbia where it's just like a three-foot wide ditch. Some places you can just drive a car across it. Uh, so there was a lot of opportunity uh, for smuggling and um, not a lot of opportunity to make to make money. So you have like four ports of entry, land border ports of entry, all kinds of vehicle traffic, commercial truck traffic coming through two of those ports of entry. It's where the water meets. So there's like this maritime border. Uh, the Canadian Gulf Islands are San Juan Islands <clears throat> abut each other. Um, there's mountainous terrain. There's between the ports of entry, there's a, all these wide open agricultural areas. Uh, it's just wide open. Um, and then when you start talking like small planes, helicopters, there's no radar coverage up there. I mean, the FAA can see jets, you know, at 5,000 feet, but there's no coverage, you know, down even to the mountaintops um, uh, or, or the hill hilltops in some of those areas. So it's just wide open, big time opportunity. People wanted that product. But what we came to find out was that a lot of the Canadian DTOs were really not marijuana organizations they were just using marijuana as a means to generate illicit uh, proceeds in the U.S. so that they could buy coke loads to smuggle the coke loads to Canada, right? So they really weren't marijuana guys. They were really, some of them were coke guys. And you would hear them on wires like, yeah, I need to flip that so that I can get what I need, which is like, you know, get the coke. And um, so, uh, you know, it got to it got to a point where, um, you know, this this whole myth about 9-11, like, oh, you know, more border enforcement, this and that, that didn't slow these guys down whatsoever. Because when you have, you know, wide open areas of border, you know, they're going to go to the path of least resistance. And if there's no... Uh, uh, detection and monitoring or any kind of queuing, you know, they're, they're literally, you know, doing the crime in front of the police station, you know, that kind of, uh, mentality. So, um, uh, we, what we also saw was that eventually the Canadian organizations were really just using America as a, like a bridge to the Mexican DTOs, the Mexican cartels. They were using like our transportation infrastructure, our communications infrastructure, and and this is where all the 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 deals would happen, or the the exchanges of product and proceeds for product were happening in America. And you would have Canadian DTOs dealing with Mexican cartels directly, not involving a single U.S. person. So you know we saw this evolve over time. So let me ask a question though: When you say nine eleven happened. And you say that they they talked about strengthening up the borders, tightening them up. As we've seen at 9-11 and, and afterwards and even before, a lot of terrorists were coming through the northern border. 
So if we know that they're coming through the northern border, we know that there is that bridge now between Canadian DTOs, Mexican DTOs, with no Americans being involved. Why do you think that there was no measures taken to seal up those borders? Or even an additional question to that would be, why continue to tell everyone to focus on the southern border when our northern border is just as heated up as the other one? Yeah, yeah. It's a great observation on your part. You know, um, I, th- I think it's the, the difficulty uh, of, of securing the northern border. And you would say, what? What do you mean the difficulty? Well, you have like the Cascade Mountain Range. So, I mean, you have like backpackers, you know, smuggling loads, hiking through these mountain trails. Very difficult to detect, very difficult to interdict. Uh, again, the air smuggling, very difficult to detect those aircraft and then and then get cued and then put an interdiction asset on it. Uh, same thing out in the water. I mean, some of the distances between the Canadian islands and the U.S. islands are just like uh, just a little over a mile. So you can imagine, uh, and, and what we came to find out in our investigations is that some of the maritime organizations would basically put spotters on these like hillsides and look across from their islands into our islands. And uh, when they would see that like a Coast Guard boat or a CBP boat would like leave the area, um, then they would send their boats across with the loads. And, and basically it's like a speed, time and distance equation. They could transit and get across and get to one of the islands before one of those assets could respond back and uh, interdict them. So uh, the, the northern border has its challenges. Uh, that being said, the Border Patrol really beefed up. Uh, when I got to Blaine, there was probably 35 of them in the Blaine area. By the time I retired um, in 2018, there was probably like 360 Border Patrol agents. Wow, in that's the a huge increase. Yeah, it's, it's enormous. And really, and that's for a an area between the ports of entry that's like 14 miles from the shoreline where the border goes into the into the, the water to the the uh, western slope of the Cascade Mountains. So that's not like a very uh, large uh, area. And there's like there ended up being over 300 agents there. So the Border Patrol beefed up uh, their personnel, you know, as a result of some of our investigations, you know, CBP Air Marine finally uh, in 2004, uh, put a, uh, air Marine branch there in Bellingham, which, uh, we worked very closely with them. And, uh, uh, you know, they were integral partners in frozen timber when we did that operation. Well, you bring that up. Let, let's talk about, uh, operation frozen timber. Now, someone from your organization said, and I don't have exactly who said it, but they said they literally took cross-border smuggling to new heights with this case. Um, You had seen everything coming in from the Bahamas. You had seen crazy things down in Florida. This to me, when you told me about this, you sent me the video to watch all that kind of stuff. The B-roll stuff that the media had had is insane. They're flying helicopters in the middle of the day to national parks, open ranges, and dropping these. So if we can first 
talk about how we set up frozen timber and then how we move through the case. Yeah. So in 1999, we worked one helicopter case with the Organized Crime Agency of British Columbia, which is a provincial agency. And they had a target that was, um, he had a, a Eurocopter on his property and he was supposedly taking flying lessons. And um, they had put some surveillance aircraft on him and saw him uh, fly into the mountains, into the Cascades. And, uh, you know, like 40 minutes later, he uh, flew back uh, to his property. So we got a tip on that guy. And um, uh, so the big question was, where was he going? We, um, we did not have a CBP Air Marine branch in our area at the time. So we called our interceptor jet from San Diego. And um, we were able to identify an approximate area in the national forest where this guy had landed. <clears throat> Basically, bad guy left, RCMP uh, members uh, followed him and their plane uh, to the border. Our jet picked him up. Guy was flying under cloud cover. Our jet had to fly at a much higher altitude because, you know, they can't fly in the clouds. You can't fly VFR, um, you know, when you can't see. So our guys are above the clouds running radar and they put him to a certain area near uh, Baker Lake, Washington in the uh, Mount Baker uh, National Forest. And uh, so we set out on in our vehicles um, subsequently because, you know, we didn't catch him when he ran the load that time. And uh, we started looking for likely places that this helicopter could have landed. And we found this gravel pit that was up on this mountainside. And I'm walking uh, uh, in the gravel pit with my partner and we're looking around, seeing if we can see the skid marks from the, from the, um, the, the helicopter, you know, like in the dirt or anything. And we had been told by our Canadian partners that the bad guys were always going to like the superstore and buying these uh, cheap pieces of luggage. And they suspected that the loads would be in luggage. It's like this cheap Chinese luggage that you can buy at like a superstore. And I'm walking through that gravel pit and I look down and what do I see? A little Chinese luggage lock. And I turned to my partner and I said, this is it. And he goes, what do you mean this is it? I go, this is the spot. And he goes, how do you know? Maybe somebody dropped that there. I go, no, but I go, this is not like, I'm a freaking backpacker and a hiker. This is not like what you would use, you know, for oh, recreational right. activities. I go, it's a Chinese luggage lock. I go, this is where they're landing. And um, so long story short, we worked that case. We found uh, an observation post uh, point and uh, we were able to uh, watch that helicopter come in a couple times and then we had state and local units road kill them uh, on a car stop and it was under our authority is essentially a customs border search um, but uh, because it was an aircraft coming from foreign dropping uh, you know didn't clear customs dropping packages to a vehicle or our search authority extends until we, if we keep continuous surveillance, our, our search authorities intact. So we, uh, we road killed them and, uh, they ended up taking down, we seized the dope. They took the guys down on the North side of the border, took down the helicopter. 
So the smuggler that was involved in that case in 1999, in 2004, November, his roommate shows up at the border, at the land border. And my guys <clears throat> respond up there to follow him because it's an associate of an old case. They're going to follow him out of the out of the port of entry and see where he's going in his vehicle. And in his vehicle, he has a sat phone and he has a map for the Okanagan National Forest. Well, at that time of the year, in order to drive to that spot, you have to drive five and a half hours because the, the, the nearest road is <clears throat> closed because of uh, snow, snow uh, on the road. So we followed that guy and that guy was basically kickstarted frozen timber. Um, he and others, we started following other associates uh, over to uh, the Metal Valley, which is in the Okanagan National Forest, which is the eastern slope of the Cascade Mountains, uh, 20 miles south of the border. And uh, we started following guys over there. We started using um, tracking technology uh, on some of their vehicles to determine where these uh, vehicles were going in the forest. And so basically it was like this step-by-step -step process where we're uh, building, uh, you know, our intel picture as to what was going on and where these guys were doing what they're doing. And what we found out was that often these offload vehicles would, uh, well, these guys would cross the, cross the uh, U.S.-Canada border coming south, like in their own car. They would go to a location, rent a vehicle, typically like a minivan, and um, then we would put some technology on that minivan when they weren't looking, and then we would determine where they had gone in the forest. And we started identifying all of these suspected landing sites where... Uh, those vehicles were going. Um, we started seeing a pattern, um, never on a weekend because there's like recreational people out there, typically Tuesday through Thursday, and the vehicles would be at these locations where you could land <clears throat> or hover a helicopter uh, at like first light. In the summertime, first light in the Pacific Northwest is 4.30. So, Sometimes we would see that these vehicles would actually spend the night uh, at these locations and then they'd be gone in the morning. So after we identified some uh, what we would consider decent locations where there was activity, uh, we put some uh, uh, remotely activated video surveillance systems uh, there and we started gathering video, which is some of that video that you saw in the B-roll. Uh, it's black and white, you know, uh, but it is, if you look at the clock, it's all typically like 4.30 in the morning uh, in the summertime. So we basically started developing a picture. Okay, what kind of aircraft? How are they doing it? Some of them were sling loads, you know, a Robinson uh, R-44 with a sling, sling load uh, dropping the, the duffel bags of marijuana to an awaiting vehicle. Some was a jet ranger coming in with like a, what they call tundra baskets underneath the skids loaded with uh, hockey bags of marijuana and being offloaded. So, you know, once we kind of built the picture as to what was going on, 
then we started uh, running surveillances, putting our own guys in the woods, trying to get some handheld close-in videography of what was going on. And then when the bad guys would come in, we started following them out. And, uh, you know, we built partnerships with uh, U.S. Forest Service law enforcement, uh, the Washington State Patrol, obviously CBP Air Marine. We were using one of their new planes, which is the, um, was a Pilatus uh, PC-12. Uh, if you're in the Air Force, you'd know it as a U-28. It's um, a low-wing tur- turboprop, single engine, but it's a, a surveillance bird, you know, that... Uh, We'd have it up, you know, uh, close to 20,000 feet, same camera system as a, a predator and uh, shooting video as to, you know, bad guys uh, flying in, offloading, then um, following the vehicle away. And what we would do is working with our state patrol unit, we'd follow them for three and a half, four and a half hours, well away from the border uh, down to like I-90, uh, down I-5. And then under our authority, uh, we'd have the state patrol roadkill them and we'd seize the, uh, the loads. You know, we'd exploit their phones, exploit their GPS, and essentially continue to build, build our case on these guys. But, uh, but having this creative flair that I say uh, that I have, we figured out how to roadkill these guys, but then cut them loose. And uh, we would make it look like the troopers did a bad search, you know, an illegal search. We would roll in as uh, investigators that these state troopers have called, not identifying ourselves as uh, as uh, uh, special agents, but, uh, you know, we would, we would basically make the bad guys think that we had no idea that this load came in a helicopter. We'd tell them, hey, you know, a load this big, you know, we're talking like, 900 pounds of BC bud flown in uh, via helicopter, like three uh, uh, consecutive flights. You know, the helicopter dropped 300 pounds, went back to Canada, picked up 300, came down, dropped 300, went back, picked up 300, dropped total 900. So we would tell the guy, hey, you know, we know a load this big came in via commercial truck. You know, where'd you meet the truck? You know, what truck stopped? what the guy look like, you know, blah, blah, blah. So uh, we um, sustained our operation by using this, you know, sleight of hand and, and, and a little bit of trickery, you know, and essentially cut people loose. But all in all, you know, at the end of our operation, we ended up, uh, you know, charging like 40 people and, and arresting uh, most of them. Uh, so, you know, that's how we... Uh, further our investigation and, and, and sustain this operation uh, was by using that little uh, bit of a uh, uh, sleight of hand and not letting them know that we knew where all those landing sites were. And a lot of people would ask me about frozen timber and say, wow, you must have had tracking devices on those helicopters. And I was like, no, we didn't have any tracking devices on bad guy helicopters because they were all coming from Canada and we didn't even know where they were coming from in Canada, but we knew where to find the offload crews. And so we would follow the offload crews and the offload crews, offload crews would show us uh, what aircraft it is and, and what's going on. 
guessing with how you did that, because you were making educated guesses, putting all the pieces together. If you can, a percentage of how many loads you think you lost. Um, I wouldn't, we, we never lost a load that we were following out. I can tell you that. No, 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 that, no, no, no. That's not what I mean. Or, or that we missed. That you missed, that, that were coming thin, that, that maybe you didn't get the landing site. I'm looking towards like, do you think there were more landing sites that you guys didn't know about? Was there stuff that, I guess that's the right word, missed or didn't know that those loads were coming in? You know how they say down on the southern border they get however meant percentage and then another gets across by what you're stopping. How do you think it worked up there? Well, I can tell you that um, there was one smuggler that essentially at his property he had four Robinson helicopters and a jet ranger. And he was working for multiple organizations and like the aircraft belonged to different Canadian organizations. So he was very active, just that one guy, that one Canadian smuggler. And then our, our investigation, our exploitation of like GPS devices, surveillances, we identified 16 landing sites just in the uh, Okanagan National Forest near Winthrop, Washington. But I can tell you that in our time of, of, uh, of activity where we followed loads out, we only followed loads out from five sites. So wow. these guys enjoyed a lot of success prior to us uh, getting onto them. Um, then there was a couple of sites uh, in Western Washington, but the majority of these loads were coming into uh, eastern Washington on the eastern slope of the Cascades. So I, I think they were highly successful um, uh, prior to us, uh, you know, ruining it for them. Yeah. And, and that was kind of my point of it was where I was leading with the question was, do you think that getting away with that at those other sites and stuff, do you think that became their downfall? Because do you think that they ever got sloppy in the operation? Um, well, in, in a way there was some sloppiness because they would leave evidence, uh, that they had, that there was activity at the site. So like, sometimes we would find like a, a fire ring okay. and what would we find in the fire ring? Um, a half, uh, burned up, uh, satellite phone box, you know, like when they bought a sat phone or we would find, um, the uh, the buckles from the ratchet straps that they would use to to put the hockey bags to, together and suspend them from the the helicopter. So um, I guess they were using the nylon to to start a fire, you know, when they were occupying some of these landing sites overnight. So in a sense, you know, they were sloppy that way. Mm -hmm. You know, we also found that um, if you walk the perimeter of a site, like you walked into the woods, you'd find their garbage. You, you know, where they're trying to, they're just not good at hiding it. Yeah. They're just not doing a good enough job right. at, at their, uh, their garbage. So you would find like ratchet straps that have been cut because, you know, they wouldn't to undo these bundles. They wouldn't like undo the ratchets. They <laughs> right. just use them and cut them. Right. So they throw the ratchet straps in the woods. So you'd find evidence of that you'd find like their clothes, you know, like some of these guys, I guess were living out there for a while and you'd, You'd find like, you know, their dirty underwear and dirty t-shirts and stuff that they'd dump. So in a way, 
they were sloppy in that in that sense. But right. you know, they they had a system set up, and some of the guys were uh, had these pretty good systems where they would have like what they called a a, a cat. The, the the guy meeting the helicopter was the catcher, so he'd catch the load, like receive it from the helicopter. Then they'd have another guy that was called the blocker, and the blocker's job was to basically do counter surveillance, be down a ways down the forest road or perhaps even block the road and pretend his vehicles broken down to ensure that, uh, uh, you know, Joe citizen or law enforcement was going to come up into the area, uh, and, uh, you know, uh, disrupt their activities. So, uh, some of them were smart that way. Some of them also were smart in that, uh, they use different kinds of visual signals. So when the helicopter was coming into land, Let's say, for example, if the driver's door to the pickup vehicle wasn't open, that would mean that that's not their guy, you know, that it's not safe to come in. You know, they would use all different kinds of um, systems to do what they were doing. But uh, I would say that uh, they were very successful. Uh, and we were very successful, too. Why? Because I, I always say we're winners. You know, we don't like to get beat and we're very competitive. And they're the opposition and uh, we're going to find a way to get our man. And I think that's, that's um, one of the themes for, um, you know, what I'm talking about is that I, I think that's kind of like the spirit of people that chase smugglers and chase contraband is that you're going to find a way to get your man. You're going to find a way to get the load. Yeah. Um, I would say you were very successful too. 40 people arrested in the United States, two attorneys included in that that were doing money laundering for them, six arrested in British Columbia, four tons of marijuana, 800 pounds of cocaine, 1.5 million in cash, two helicopters and one plane seized. I would say that's a very successful operation. Yeah, yeah. And, and the fact that we were able to actually seize a helicopter in the U.S. in the act was was kind of like a fluke, but we, we were prepared to do it. Uh, I have to say that, um, you know, a couple of the smugglers killed themselves in Canada, um, flying. Uh, these guys were not licensed pilots. They were taught how to fly helicopters. So, you know, one guy, um, rolled over, uh, a jet ranger, uh, taking his girlfriend for a joyride. He was a smuggler and and killed her. And then, uh, the guy from the 1999 case, um, he actually was active again during frozen timber and him and another, uh, pilot, um, burned in, you know, and, uh, killed themselves in Canada. But I, I had my guys like under strict orders that when, when we were like to the point where we had guys hiding in the woods, doing videography, you were never to approach, a running helicopter if the pilot's behind the controls because he can easily just roll it over on its side and as you know you know uh rotor blades going flying every everywhere and uh, uh causing you know mortal injuries so um my guys were under those orders that if the if the pilot's behind the controls do not approach a running helicopter because sometimes the catcher would just come up and just take the stuff and the pilot would stay behind the controls, ready to lift off at a moment's notice. And some of these offloads, they could occur in as, as little as 40 seconds to like two minutes. So it's a very short window, 
for like my guys to like think that they can charge out of the woods and like approach these guys and take them down. But there was this one instance where our guys were in the woods, pilot got out, he's helping the catcher unload uh, this Robinson that had these like side pods. And then the, the pilot and the, and the co-pilot seat had a, um, like a hockey bag strapped in. So he was like helping offload and that helicopter was running at uh, ground idle. And uh, our guys rolled out of the woods and came up behind them and took them down. <clears throat> and it was kind of funny because the, um, the catcher thought that it was the blocker playing a trick on, playing a joke on them, a crank, saying like, police get down. Like they never thought that they would be caught. And right. he ended up uh, telling us later on, he's like, man, you guys have like the coolest job job ever, you know? And I was just like, well, you know, because of you guys, I guess we have the coolest job <laughs> yeah. ever. Yeah, no you kidding. Know? But, uh, but yeah, so that we were, we were fortunate that we were, that we were able to seize one helicopter ourselves on the U S side of the border. Well, I think it was a very successful operation. And I think it was, uh, I love in your career, how you saw both ends of the spectrum. You saw coming in from South America, you saw the boats and then you saw something that I don't think a lot of people know about. I really don't think a lot of people know about the Northern operations that are going on. And I love how it kind of bookended your career, uh, starting in Miami, ending there, and doing the things that you did. Now, you did some other things. Is there anything that you wish that you maybe would have done or was the, it was the career that you wanted? I, I think I got my arms around as much as I could. Um, the only type of case that I never worked that I always wanted to work was um, – like these big mothership cases, like in the Pacific Ocean. Um, but like those cases had really ended by the time I got to Blaine. You know, they used to have like uh, coming from Thailand, these ships with like uh, marijuana loads that'd be offloading on the Washington coast, Oregon coast. And I was always interested in doing one of those cases, but but I never did because I, I kind of missed the window. Uh, just like I always joked that, you know, I was going to be the first uh, – federal law enforcement officer on the space shuttle, but you know, they canceled the program before, uh, you know, I was ready to go. So I would love um, to see how customs operations go there. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, I think I, I, I got as much out of it as I, uh, as I could. And, um, and, and I think, you know, when I look back, shoot, if I could do it, you know, um, a guy that was like a Miami beach lifeguard with a physical education degree, you know, anybody can do it. You just have to apply yourself. You have to have a good work ethic, um, you know, and, uh, and I think you have to have a good imagination and creativity, especially when you're, you're uh, taking on challenges that other people say, it's like, this is impossible. You're not going to be able to do this. And I was like, I was, always had this attitude like, oh, challenge, challenge accepted, you know, uh, we'll figure out a way to do it. You know, I remember there was an RCMP officer, you know, cause they, they have like officers and like enlisted. And there was an officer when we started frozen timber was telling me, he's like, ah, oh, you guys are just going after these, these like, you know, um, these little guys, you know, these blockers and catchers. And I was like, 
well, that's how we work. You know, we work from the bottom up, you know, and, um, you know, that's, that's otherwise, if we don't work it that way, then we're not working them. You know, Absolutely. They're, they're going to, they're going to, um, have all kinds of success and we're not going to have any success. So that's the way we're going to work them is bottom up. And, and we were fortunate that we had a very small, uh, group of RCMP, like, uh, enlisted guys that, um, we're very good at, at uh, their tradecraft and, and working with us. And they helped us out enormously in frozen timber, uh, setting up surveillances on their side of the mountains and giving us a heads up when aircraft were in flight and headed our way. Absolutely. Uh, I want to kind of wrap our conversation up. I want to talk about your sons and specifically yeah. Jack. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your sons um, because they were kind of miracles from the beginning um, yeah. of how they were born and stuff. And then let's specifically talk about Jack, what happened and what you're doing to turn that tragedy into a triumph. Yeah. So, um, our sons, uh, Jack and Sam are fraternal twins. They were born, uh, very premature, you know, like at 26 weeks, um, in 1999, um, uh, Jack was born in Bellingham. He was one pound, 12 ounces. And then uh, he was medevac down to Seattle to the NICU. And then uh, my wife was then medevac down in a different helicopter to Seattle. And uh, she hung on to Sam for uh, three more days. And then he was born down there. And Sam was one pound, nine ounces. These little guys spent uh, a month and a half in the NICU in Seattle at uh, uh at UW's hospital there. And uh, then they spent a month in the nursery back in our hospital in Bellingham. Truly, uh, it's like a medical miracle, you know. Uh, and I look back at 1999 <clears throat> when I was visiting them in the hospital and I would see like the, the care and the, and the techniques and, and, and uh, medical techniques that they were undergoing and it's just amazing. And I can only imagine what it's like, you know, present day, you know, improvements and all of that uh, medical uh, science and uh, with premature children. But uh, yeah, these were, uh, they, they grew up to be, uh, you know, very active boys, uh, skiers and uh, riding bikes, playing the woods, playing army. You know, Jack was a big, always uh, leaned towards, um, uh, all things military, you know, military gear, all of my, uh, law enforcement gear, anything to get his hands on. He was playing and using, um, his brother, Sam was kind of more into trains and that kind of thing. But Jack was always into the army, uh, military type stuff. And, uh, even to the point when, um, you know, airsoft became a big thing, you know, when he was a teenager, he was like big, big time into airsoft and he'd go off like on Saturdays uh, into the woods with like all these people that would show up at these meetups. And even if it was raining and uh, they'd like airsoft and battle it out for hours, you know, and he'd always come home, you know, wet and shivering and with a smile on his face. Um, he's a good kid, you know, funny kid too, you know, very, um, saw humor in a lot of things. I remember, um, 
you know, so he grew up in like this post 9-11 world, right? Born in 1999, grew up around a lot of law enforcement people, you know, a lot, lot was being said about, you know, radical uh, Islamic terrorists and whatnot. And uh, um, he uh, was paying attention, you know, and he kind of had an eye for all that kind of stuff. But um, he uh, graduated from high school. We had moved to uh, Bend, Oregon, and uh, was going. He's going to the community college with his brother Sam and uh, Jack. Uh, the community college has an Army RTC program that they share with uh, Oregon State University. And Jack was an uncommitted freshman in RTC, and and I would say that um, he. Again, he, he came back from like his first FTX. Again, dirty, wet, cold, shivering with a big smile on his face. And he's like, oh man, he goes, I definitely want to go infantry. You know, that's what I want to do. And um, so he he was getting a taste of, of what he <clears throat> envisioned for himself. You know, he'd always ask me about, so what does it take to be like on the SWAT team or like dad, you were on the special response team, you know, in, in customs. And, and I'm like, yeah, well, you have to start at the bottom. You have to start as, you know, a special agent or a police officer and work your way into that special unit. You know, it just, you don't just start there. And so he's like, okay. And um, I think he chose the military <clears throat> path. He was influenced by, I think, a lot of what he was seeing, you know, in the movies. He was interested like in Vietnam history, you know, it seemed like um, the Vietnam movies, whether Apocalypse Now or um, when he was seeing uh, Generation Kill mm -hmm. and all that stuff. And I think it all like influenced him. And um, so getting that ROTC experience kind of put the icing on the cake for him. And then one day he's like, yeah, I want to be a Marine. And we're like, oh, really? We thought you were going to go Army. He's like, no, I want to be in the Marines. And um, so we're like, okay, you know, and, you know, our attitude was that uh, my wife and I, our attitude was that, hey, we're going to fully support you and in, in whatever dream you're chasing, you know, it kind of has to fit, you know, the parameters of what I call the meal deal. And I learned the meal deal from an RCMP officer. That means it's moral, ethical, affordable, and legal. You know, if whatever you're doing fits those parameters, we're going to support you. So, um he enlisted as a private and, uh, you know, we, we were happy for him. You know, he, um, was following his dream. You know, he was going to be the, he was the first Ostrovsky, uh, in the U S military because, you know, um, we started in the U S with my dad arriving here. Um, although his uh, great grandfather and grandfather were in the Navy and the army. So, um, you know, he was following in their footsteps and, um, and chose his path, which was uh, uh, Marine Corps Infantry. Uh, graduated from recruit training with the honor platoon, you know, shot rifle expert, uh, as expected. You know, he was always a big shooter. We'd always go shooting uh, together. Um, and uh, went to the School of Infantry. Uh, you know, when you have an infantry contract with the Marine Corps, you know, you go to the school of infantry, but then they, they zero in whether you're going to be a rifleman or uh, a mortarman or, or whatever. And uh, 
So he got his uh, 0311 designation at the School of Infantry, exactly what he wanted, which he wanted to be a rifleman. And then we, we thought it was fortuitous that he was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 4th Marines, because they're known as the China Marines. Um, and when my dad was living in Tianjin, China, that's where the China Marines were based. U.S. Marines were in, were in China. So uh, my dad, uh, you know, put a big smile on his face uh, because uh, he remembered as a boy seeing Marine, U.S. Marines uh, in the area that he lived in. And now his grandson was one of those Marines. So, um, yeah, all, all seemed to be going well. Uh, Jack was assigned to the mechanized company which essentially rides in AAVs as embarked troops, um, which was kind of sad for him and us because his two best buddies uh, went over to um, the uh, small boat company. And and Jack being um, a very able swimmer, you know, and uh, he had learned to surf, uh, felt very comfortable in and around the water. So it was kind of disappointing that he wouldn't be in the small boat company. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, he, he loved being a Marine and we love that he loved being a Marine. Well, I want to ask you something about the AAV. You had some conversations with him and we're going to get into like the last time that you actually get to talk to him and see him. But, uh, a week before the accident, Jack stated that AAVs sink all the time and that they were actual floating coffins. Yeah. He said that to me and, you know, um, I, I was kind of, I was shocked. I was like, what, what are you talking about? Like, what do you mean they sink all the time? If, if they sink all the time, then they're not going to be using them. You know, like it just didn't, it just didn't make sense to me uh, what he was talking about. And, and frankly, I didn't know shit about AAVs. You know, I know go fast boats and I know helicopters. Like I know nothing about, uh, you know, military equipment, uh, uh, especially like, you know, mechanized equipment. So, and then what he said to me, which, you know, I haven't said to many people was, he said, if I ever get trapped in one, he goes, I'm going to, uh, shoot and kill myself. And I was like, whoa, 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 like, like, slow down. What are you, what are you talking about? Like getting trapped in one. I'm like, you're a good swimmer. You're very comfortable in the water. I'm like, if something happens, you, you do what you know, to do best and you swim on out of there or whatever, you know, like, so I was kind of shocked that he had said that about shooting himself. And, and what I subsequently came to find out was that there was an incident in Iraq where an AAV went off a bridge into a river and uh, four Marines were trapped in it. And when the AAV was subsequently recovered, it was found that they had shot themselves. So I guess that was some kind of story uh, passed down, you know, through the, through the Marines, you know, uh, over time. And that was his reference to, uh, shooting himself. And then I was like, well, how are you going to shoot yourself? Cause like, you guys don't have ammo. He's like, oh no, he goes, I'm going to steal a bullet. I'm going to have a bullet with me all the time. Okay. So you love him being a Marine. He loves being a Marine. You hear this though. It's got to change your whole outlook on what's going on because that's his unit it's not the small boats it's not that is the unit he will be in those all the t excuse me he will be in those all the time so 
I've got to understand what you're thinking as a father hearing that and how you're going to move forward with this, because that's a pretty eye-opening thing to say. Yeah, I mean, obviously I'd prefer that he not be in that unit. Uh, You know, I'd prefer that he'd be in the small boats or or he'd be in Charlie Company, which would ride in Ospreys, which that's another has become another story as well, but, uh, for, for many families. But, um, so, so yeah, I, I was concerned, but you know, he was telling me that they were training. Uh, he told me that, yeah, we're supposed to go do the dunker. There's like an AV simulator. And I was like, okay. So, you know, it appears he's going to get trained, uh, as, as much as, uh, they need to, to be, uh, embark troops in their vehicles. Um, I do remember at one point I asked him, I said, did you get to do the dunker? And this was, um, because that was like a requirement for them that there's like this AV simulator that they drop into the pool and it, it rolls over and then they open the door and they swim out. And, um, and, uh, he didn't immediately answer me. And there was like a pregnant pause and he said, uh, we did the chair. And I was like, okay. Uh, and then he kind of moved on and started talking about something else. And, you know, what I came to find out was that his entire company essentially did not go through the AV simulator, through the dunker. Uh, they had put them in what they call a shallow water egress trainer, which is a, like a beach chair type thing that you put in the shallow end of a pool and you flip it over and you put practice like undoing a six point harness. It's really more relative to, um, flying aircraft. a black hawk. Yeah. Yeah. Flying an aircraft. I mean, I had done it cause I had done water survival with, uh, CBP or Marine and we did, right. we did the, um, shallow water eager strainer. So I was familiar with that, but, um, you know, we would hear from him, uh, regularly on the weekends and, um, they were training, you know, they went to 29 palms and did a bunch of, uh, infantry training, you know, live fire, because that's where they do all the live fire. Uh, he said that he had ridden some AVs on land, um, and he thought that was thrilling, you know, to have the hatches open and be, stand, you know, standing up on the benches, you know, with his rifle. And we saw him the last time was in March of uh, 2020 when we drove his pickup truck down to him. At Camp Pendleton, the three of us drove down there to, to bring him his pickup truck and some other things and visit with them. And then that's when, like, COVID was popping off. So we didn't know if we'd be able to fly home, what was going to happen with domestic flights. So, you know, we cut our, our trip uh, two days short and we flew home. And uh, that's the last time we ever saw him other than, you know, via FaceTime. Right. Uh, so July 27th. That's the last time you speak with him. He yeah. says that they're getting ready to go to the USS Somerset uh, and they're going to do training. Now, going back to what he told you, does this raise any concerns with you? Or are you thinking 29 Palms went okay? All the other training went okay? Does this bring any kind of hesitation or thought into your mind? I would say not. I mean, he was he was super excited. You know, we had... We had talked about, you know, wow, this is this is the pre-deployment training uh, evolution, you know, because they were going to go on deployment uh, in the fall. Uh, there was word that they would be going all the way to um, 
the Persian Gulf and, uh, or Australia or, you know, he was excited. We were excited for him. It was like, all right, this is the next step. You're uh, going on pre-deployment training. I remember um, prior to that, he was talking to my wife and I about uh, going skydiving and starting to work on his skydiving um, license. And we were like, no, don't do it. You know, if you break your leg and you miss deployment, you know, that's that's one of the things that, you know, you build your career with and, uh, you know, don't do something like that outside, essentially outside of work that's going to interfere with work. So we talked him out of that. Um, so, you know, he's very focused on, on um, getting to deployment, you know, and this was part of it, going on the Somerset and uh, learning how to uh, live aboard ship and operate from a ship. So, um, you know, the thing is, is that, you know, he made that comment and I quite didn't understand it because I didn't have the context of the true story of the AAV in the river in Iraq. So, you know, like I just didn't have that piece of information. And, and frankly, you know, it's a professional military organization. You know, my expectations were, were high, you know, and my expectations were, um, high of the, uh, the officers and the senior NCOs. So from what you know now, walk us through uh, the night of the 30th. I'll walk, walk you through it chronologically. So the night of the 30th, I'm actually doing this because uh, a friend of mine and I were going to start up a podcast and we were rep- uh, recording a, um, like an introductory episode. And uh, when we finished recording, uh, we were still online and, um, you know, we flipped over. I told my friend, I'm like, yeah, flip over to marinetraffic.com. You can see where uh, the USS Somerset is and the other ships during training. Because, you know, when they're near shore uh, in the U.S., they, they're using their AIS, which is this uh, uh, automated identification system. So it's like a transponder. You can see the ships. So I could see the Somerset and see where it was. And, um, you know, this is in the evening and. So the next morning, uh, and so I have no idea that basically what what had happened that day. What I did not know, and um, so what what had actually happened that day, was um, his company, which was a Bravo company, uh, was doing a mechanized raid on San Clemente Island. Jack and his company boarded the ship down at the docks in San Diego and rode the ship. Uh, up off of San Clemente. The AAVs uh, splashed from the Del Mar boat basin at Camp Pendleton, and essentially they call it swimming out to the ship. And uh, I think it was a package of like uh, 12 of them swam out to the ship. En route, one of them broke down and uh, its uh, uh, propulsion broke and they had to use what's called water tracks. It's basically, it's like a, they use the tracks like a paddle wheel which is, uh, I, I can't understand how they would get much uh, purchase in the water with that, but I guess that does give them some purchase and forward propulsion. So when the tracks came to the ship, um, one of them broke, broke down. So on the morning of the 30th, they're doing the, the mechanized raid. They're going to splash with the tracks. Now, that being said, this is the first time that Bravo Company, that the Embark troops have ever been in an AAV in the water. Typically, they're supposed to do um, 
uh, a course where the troops uh, will ride in the back and the AAV uh, crewmen who, who drive it, who are the mechanics, who are the navigators, um, uh, splash the AAVs like uh, into the water from the beach and then they swim down the beach and they splash back out. So at least they get some, some um, uh, time and training, you know, in the water and the embark troops get to know what it's like to ride in one in the water. So uh, that morning, uh, they have to leave one AAV on the ship because one had broken down. So the AAVs, uh, I think it's 11 of them, splash. They make it to San Clemente Island. Uh, and the splash or the and the swim is not too far. Like they basically put them in the water, not too far out, outside the harbor on the west side. Uh, that's how they typically do it. And they did their uh, mechanized raid. Um, They're supposed to basically splash back uh, in the water and go back to the ship at 11 a.m. with an arrival at the ship by by noon. Well, while on the island, one of the AAVs um, throws a hub, breaks down. So um, it's decided to try to fix it. Uh, there's a delay. Uh, they're waiting for parts to come from the Somerset via uh, an LCAC, you know, a landing craft air cushion. It's going to bring them some parts to fix this, this uh, hub on this one vehicle. Uh, hub can't be fixed. They don't have the parts. Um, so the vehicles run like in, I believe it's in threes. So uh, it is decided the company commander, uh, the, the embark troops, and then the platoon uh, commander for the AAVs, they decide to leave, you know, three AAVs on the, two AAVs on the island with a broken down one, the company commander stand behind, um, some other senior NCOs are stand behind, and they're going to send the rest of the AAVs, which is like, uh, eight of them, I think, back to the ship. But there's continued delays. So now like noon turns into one, one turns into two, two turns into three o'clock. Um, then it's like four o'clock. Sea state's increasing, winds are increasing. And uh, it is decided at that point that the AVs will splash and swim back to the ship. That being the ship, that, that being said, the ship is no longer near the outside of the harbor. It is way offshore. And um, so this column of AVs head back to the ship. Jack's AV, which is a track, they call they call them tracks. Track five is the uh, third from the back in the column. And um, the other two AVs that are part of their um, they don't call it a flight, but maybe it's a float. Um, the other two that his AAV is running with are behind him. Well, one of those AAVs breaks down. The last AAV puts them into tow and starts towing them back to the island. Like breaks down, like no propulsion. Starts towing them back to the island. Jack's AAV is now the last AAV. And they continue following the others. And at a certain point, uh, Jack's AAV starts taking on water. It loses um, its ability to uh, 
operate its bilge pumps because it had had a transmission leak that on the island they discovered the leak, but they didn't put enough transmission fluid into the, the vehicle. So if the transmission fails to work, then the hydraulic uh, bilge pumps start to fail to work. So um, basically Jack's AV loses propulsion, loses its ability to uh, pump out water and they're taking on water because the things, the AV's leaking, it's got a, one of its headlights is apparently installed backwards. So the gasket's not keeping any water out. The plenums, which is like the air intake, which takes in air to the engine, but keeps water out. Uh, the plenum seal is failing and taking in water. And uh, so they are essentially uh, floundering uh, in the ocean as all of these other AAVs in front of them are continuing to the ship and nobody, nobody sees them and nobody hears them on the radio. The radios aren't working. Uh, the AAV that's being towed back to the island, what we come to find out subsequently that apparently that AAV was sinking too, because when they tried to pull it out at the beach, the tow line snapped. So as an experienced mariner, I know what causes vessels to become very heavy, it's water weight. So apparently that AAV is going to sink as well. Uh, and it didn't, you know, they got it partially up onto the beach. But uh, Jack's AV is basically abandoned. You know, it's left adrift. The AV um, commander, which is different than the um, infantry platoon commander that's, that's on board, he um, starts waving with the, the November flag. It's like a white and blue checkered flag, which is a way for them to signal distress. They also have flares that they can use to signal distress. But the um, vehicle commander is using the uh, signal flag instead of the flares for like 25 minutes. But there's nobody to see him waving the flag because basically all of the other AAVs are turned and they're going in opposite directions. You know, they're not looking backwards. And the ship is so far away that um, they, they can't see the November flag. Um, you know, they apparently were doing flight ops. So they typically have a, a rear lookout on the back of the ship that looks rearward. They had to secure that lookout because you can't do helicopter flight ops with somebody in the back of the ship. So essentially, this guy's waving, uh, this Marine's waving uh, the November flag for 25 minutes where nobody would see it. It's, it's tantamount to basically trying to make make a, a cell phone call with a dead, dead cell phone, you know, doesn't use his flares, which, you know, I'm, I'm an experienced mariner, you know, when you're just in distress in the maritime environment, you use flares. You don't wave a flag because flares can be seen at a great distance. Uh, I've been, I've worked, I've uh, worked on Navy ships and other large vessels. You know, when you're on the bridge, you can see quite a distance and the lookouts on the bridge wings can see flares at, at any distance, you know, because uh, that's their job is to be a lookout, especially when you're doing aviation flight operations. You know, aviators are always looking for traffic, you know, looking for things in the air. So uh, they would have seen the flares. So, you know, a lot of time was wasted and, um, and this AV was taking on more and more water when actually when the, the, 
water gets to the what they call the deck plate, which is the floor inside of the AAV, to that level, you're supposed to drop your gear and put on your LPV, LPUs and get ready to evacuate. That wasn't done. Um, apparently water was at uh, knee and then thigh level and they still had all of them inside uh, the vehicle where the hatch is closed and uh, uh, vessel commander still waving the flag, not, o- not ordering an evacuation from, from, uh, from the vessel. Ultimately, when one of the AVs got back on the ship, one of those uh, AV crew turned around and he saw the flag in the distance. And at that point, two other AVs turned around and went to try to uh, assist them. So I'm just wondering, not not to interrupt, but I'm 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 wondering why, as they're taking this on, they know it's a complete systems failure. The flag is not working. Did you ever find out why the evacuation wasn't called for? I mean, essentially, you're in a non-working ship, completely non-working ship. Yeah, and then we know, especially if you're a mariner, you know that uh, life preserver units are made to keep you afloat on the surface of the ocean. And, uh, you know, so when you have 16 people in the ocean together with their yellow LPUs inflated, that makes a big visual target. Because there Nobody's, should be a strobe, too. Yeah, um, I don't know if they have strobes, but it makes for a vi- big visual target, you know, especially when you're all grouped up together, uh, locked in arms, floating on the surface with yellow LPUs. Easy to spot from the air, uh, easy to spot at a distance as you see that group of Marines, you know, cresting waves and going down waves. Nobody was going to drown if they were put in the water. That's... That's completely absurd and a farce, but apparently that was the mentality, was that the safest place for them to be was to stay in the vehicle, which to me, it just, uh, it doesn't compute because when the vehicle starts to sink, where's that next intermediate point? Where's the intermediate point of safety? There is none. You're essentially in a vehicle that's sinking and going underwater. So... What happened was uh, one of the AAVs that turned around that came back to assist them. At that point, there was about three inches of freeboard on their AAV and uh, they had opened the hatches. They were taking waves into uh, through the hatch into the vehicle. And um, one of the AAVs that came back to try to do a, a troop transfer, like a side to side troop transfer. Uh, bumped them as they they came alongside or approached them and put uh, track five, you know, sideways into the swell and then a huge swell washed into the vehicle, uh, washed uh, a few of the embarked Marines that were already uh, on the top, you know, out the hatch and uh, the vehicle sank. It just immediately sank with the hatch open. Uh, The AV driver, and I heard his testimony at one of the boards of inquiry. He um, he was like a high school swimmer. It was his background. So he was actually trapped inside the driving um, station. He couldn't open his hatch to get out because like the driver, the commander have their own hatches. The uh, infantry, the platoon commander also has his own hatch, but the driver could not open his hatch. So he actually sunk 
with the vehicle. And as he uh, testified, you know, he swam out because uh, there's a little passageway where he can go from his position into where the embarked troops are. And he swam out and uh, stated that, um, you know, he encountered, you know, uh, Marines, you know, boots and boots in his face and Marines and people. And, you know, as he was swimming out, he reached, because he's familiar with the LPUs, the the uh, pull cord or the activation cord has like beads on them. You know, he grabbed a couple of LPUs and found the beads and pulled the LPUs and uh, swam out. Uh, that being said, you know, he was able to do like a free ascent to the surface and uh, he suffered like a partial drowning survived, you know, was found on the surface, but Jack and uh, eight others, uh, they were subsequently found. The vehicle was subsequently found by a, a deep sea ROV that the Navy has and uh, hatch open. And uh, Jack and the eight others were uh, actually on the ocean floor with their LPUs inflated and all their gear on some of them with rifles still slung around their necks. You know, what we know about those LPUs is that uh, when you go, you know, they, on the surface, they'll give you like 70 pounds of buoyancy. Uh, so you can still have some of your kit on and they'll give you buoyancy. Uh, if you don't have any kit, it's awesome buoyancy on the surface. But then, you know, if you're 20 feet underwater, it cuts its buoyancy in half and the deeper you go, uh, it just doesn't, they don't work. So that's why they were found on the ocean floor with uh, their LPUs inflated. Um, somehow they they got out of the vehicle and uh, they just probably were unable to swim to the surface because they still had so much gear on and not enough uh, buoyancy. So, so yeah, he drowned uh, with the others. When you find out, because you don't find out until the next day. Yeah. And uh, I think a neighbor tells you, is that correct? Yeah. So it's uh, the next day is Friday. Uh, I was off uh, that day because I was had a job that I was doing at the community college in uh, the summers. We have Fridays off and I'd go hiking with my wife uh, on Fridays. We'd always go hiking and uh, in the morning. And as we were en route to our hike, our neighbor called my wife on the mobile phone and said, hey, there's a thing in the news about an AAV sinking off of San Clemente Island. We're like, oh shit, that's Jack's company. And and we knew he was was doing that uh, mechanized raid on Thursday. So, uh, you know, we're like, oh man, uh, what do we do? Who do we call? And, you know, I had met the uh, battalion chaplain uh, when Jack reported to uh, First uh, Battalion, Fourth Marines, because uh, he reported the day he graduated from the School of Infantry, and the battalion commander had uh, invited us some uh, over to their uh, building for you know like a family brief. So I'd met the chaplain, and I still had his number in my um, mobile num mobile phone. I called him, and he had told me that he was no longer with the battalion, but he was aware of the accident or the incident. You know, we talked about the whole concept of like no news is good news. And, you know, certainly anybody that passed away yesterday, you know, because there, there were some Marines that had died. Or there was a Marine that died, you know, that night found on the surface and he was deceased. And 
Uh, Chaplain told me that certainly that notification has already been made to the family. So uh, there are some Marines that are missing and uh, probably those notifications will come, you know, later today. And, but he was like, yeah, no news is good news. Uh, so my wife and I decided that, well, instead of just sitting home and worrying, let's just go for a walk, you know, and we went for a hike. And well, the other thing was the chaplain said that he was familiar with Jack's name. And, and I didn't know how to take that, uh, whether he meant like he was involved or because we have such a unique last name that he was familiar with Jack's, Jack's last name. But um, so we did this hike and we're up on this like small mountain where we have cell service and we called a couple family members to tell them that, you know, there was an accident and Jack, it was Jack's company and we don't know what's going on. And but we'll let them know as soon as we know something. And as we're hiking down, uh, Sam, our other son calls my wife and says, Hey, uh, there were two Marines at our front door and they were looking to talk to your mom. And, uh, I gave them your, your phone number. And they said that they were going to call you. When I heard that, I was just, I just couldn't believe it. I, I, as curse in the world, you know. Um, and then the phone rang, and it was the first sergeant from the uh, reserve center here in Springfield, Oregon, uh, said he needed to talk to us. And uh, we told them, we're like, well, we're, uh, we're an hour from the house, and uh, if you came from Springfield, you drove right by where we <laughs> were hiking. So, uh, we need to catch up to you, so we'll see you in an hour. And uh, he came to the house and told us what happened, and that Jack and eight others were missing, and they're, they were uh, under uh, duty status unknown. You know, he'd be our our contact all all the way through this thing, and um, and so we we talked a bit, and uh, they left him and his uh, partner, and uh, so he was the. F- the full-time first sergeant that runs the reserve center. Super nice guy, uh, former uh, air traffic controller, also been an embassy Marine security guard detachment as well. So, and then uh, the next morning he, you know, and then, oh, then that day we called, we called uh, all our family and started notifying close friends that Jack was missing. And, and I told Lynn, I was like, yeah, you know, if, if he got to the surface, he's fine. You know, he's out there floating somewhere, but if he's still missing and they have this large search underway, you know, if he's trapped inside, then he's, he's dead. There's, there's no doubt about that. And, uh, next morning, the first sergeant came back to the house and told us that the commanding general had called off the search, you know, um, and that they were all being declared deceased. And then, uh, you know, kind of started from there. You know, he was our casualty calls assistance officer and, you know, the process started. Uh, you know, the process is paperwork, forms to fill out, Q&A, you know. Um, Let me ask you a question. Whenever you hear that they called off the search, we're two days in, correct? Yeah, so, so, yeah, so, the, so he, it, the vehicle sank Thursday at, like 6 p.m. So now we're talking Saturday. 
with everything that you've done in your career, the links that you've gone to, to find what you need to find, to search out people that you wanted to find, hearing that they call off the search, can you talk about how you felt? That was a, rea- that, that was a reality for me. Uh, I knew that if he made it to the surface and he was alive, he would have been found by now because they had like, it was a massive search, all kinds of Coast Guard aircraft, Navy aircraft, Marine aircraft, vessels. I mean, I, I could I could look on um, Marine traffic and see like a gazillion vessels out there uh, that were, were searching. And some of them were like commercial fishing boats, whatever. I, so like, I, I knew that, um, yeah, they've called off the search because they can't find them because they're underwater. And then, and then we got some preliminary information that, you know, one Marine made it to the surface and died. Some of the crew, you know, were on the surface and injured, partial drownings, uh, you know, Jack's uh, platoon, no, Jack's uh, fire team leader, he was another, uh, like a partial drowning guy. And then nobody else was seen coming to the surface. You know, that was a reality that, yeah, it's time to call off the search. They're not going to survive in, you know, 50 degree water. Uh, and, and they would have been found by now. So how do you go forward with all this information? There's got to be a million questions on your mind. There's got to be that you want answers and stuff. What do you do to gain closure on this? Well, you know, I have to say that um, it was pretty rough, you know, because um, we we did not, we thought he was still trapped in the vehicle. We came to, out to find out subsequently that they were found on the ocean floor. So all along, like I didn't, like I didn't know that the hatch was open, right? I, I know now that the hatch was open, but I did not know that the, the hatch was open. So um, I had not told Lynn, my wife, that Jack had told me that he'd shoot himself if he was ever trapped in one of those vehicles. So here we are for months. I'm thinking, I wonder if he killed himself. I wonder if he executed his plan. You know, a lot, a, a lot happened before we found out the cause of death you know we you know august 8th we go down there to camp pendleton to this un, this unofficial memorial on the beach you know we we meet with with a bunch of the marines and people from his company and we meet with jack's roommate and we go to breakfast with him and 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 some people that are some marines that he uh was close to and then we fly to dover uh delaware because that's where the military has the uh mortuary right for a uh, dignified transfer of all of them you know once they were recovered we were in four, you know in that period of time the rv showed up we were told the vehicles recovered off the ocean floor your sons were recovered but we didn't realize in the way that this uh personnel casualty report was written was that they meant that he was outside the vehicle we thought it meant that, okay, they recovered the vehicle and they were all in the vehicle. Um, so, but, but actually if you read the, the PCR, um, and if, if you read it a different way, you realize, oh, he was outside the vehicle with the others. We go to Dover, uh, they do 
before they do the uh, the transfer off the um, the C seventeen, you know, they use the term dist- distinguished visitors wherever at the um, the Fisher House, which is uh, a foundation that uh, supports families during these tragedies, and they have all these facilities uh, around bases around the world that um, you know receiving a, a loved one uh, or uh, they wait there or um, they meet, whether it's the president or the secretary of defense or whatnot, uh, they meet them in that facility. So uh, the distinguished visitors show up, you know, it's the commandant of the Marine Corps, it's uh, secretary of the Navy, sergeant major of the Marine Corps, deputy defense secretary, um, the chairman, uh, Mike Milley, joint chiefs of staff is there, a bunch of uh, different people, their spouses as well accompany them. And so we meet with them and then we go out to the ramp and then we watch uh, them being brought off and loaded up into the, uh, the vehicles and they take them off, take them to the mortuary. So, you know, we did that. This is, it's like August 12th, August 21st, we go back to Camp Pendleton for the unit memorial, which really sucks because that's Sam's 21st birthday. So, you know, Sam on his 21st birthday is at his brother's uh, unit memorial and um, which was like a, a massive showing and, and very, very well done. You know, uh, the commandant was um, was there, but I, I didn't speak to him. But I have to tell you that something happened at that unit memorial that kind of showed me the um, the spirit of the, the Marine Corps. And, and it's probably the same in the Army, you know, how you don't how, how they honor their uh, fallen brothers and sisters is, uh, so they have the unit memorial on the big helicopter ramp, um, big wide open space. They've got tents set up and they have these uh, portraits on easels for the nine of them. And there's a, a battlefield cross with their, their rifle and their helmet and dog tags and, and other displays. And, and uh, that's at uh, Camp Pendleton at what they call Camp Camp Horno. Well, that's the English way of saying Orno, which Orno is camp oven. And the reason why it's called camp oven is because it's always hot there behind the mountains and there's never a breeze. And uh, so we're there at the memorial and company commanders speaking, battalion commanders speaking, chaplains speaking. And um, all of a sudden the wind gusts up and blows all those easels down flags down, colors down, everything's like on the ground. And it's like the entire company of Marines behind us without even being told just comes running out onto the ramp and grabs the, the displays. And basically now they are the easels, you know, for the entire, uh, unit memorial. So that, that really uh, spoke to me uh, when I saw that. Um, after, the, after the unit memorial, Jack's uh, battalion commander came up and spoke with us and uh, we hadn't met him before and other than uh, previously when Jack was, had uh, reported to the uh, battalion, but briefly, um, and we're walking with him. We're kind of heading over to this tent to get a refreshment. And um, and there was just something 
he was very nervous, obviously. And, you know, you can only imagine how nervous you'd be if, if you were responsible for uh, a battalion and then, you know, 90 of your people are lost and people are injured, seriously injured. And, but I, I sensed something, something was up. And he starts telling us about the AAVs and that there's an investigation underway and uh, that um, he has to ride in an AAV too. So he wants to get to the bottom of what happened. And, and, the, and, he, and he says to Lynn and I, he says, he goes, I have no idea why that vehicle would have sunk. And I just kind of, it just didn't sit right with me. You know, you know, it is. We're cops. We've interviewed a gazillion people. And when people say certain things, it just doesn't seem right. Um, what I come to find out, you know, months later is that, oh yeah, he, he, he had plenty of idea <laughs> as to, um, why that AAV sank, you know, it's, it's in the investigation. They, they received vehicles that were essentially like on the deadline lot, you know, uh, poor conditioned AVs classified as poor. They were having trouble getting them working and, uh, they had never trained with them in the water. The first time that the company was in the water in an AV was off the ship, you know, which is like absurd to think that that would be the first time that you would even introduce water, you know. And uh, so, you know, I'm looking at this investigation and I'm like, yeah, I mean, he, he knew, he knew. And, and even in his statement, he was trying to get them repaired and was running into trouble because the, the AVs actually belonged to a, an AV unit, you know, an AV battalion. And, and there were some difficulties between the infantry and the uh, mechanized battalion. And I don't know, you know, the interesting thing is that, um, there, there was plenty of opportunities, uh, and you could see it in the investigation to do more training, even do it as dry land training. Uh, when they, when they lost the ability to put all their people through the dunker in the pool, they could have just done it on dry land, you know, which practice on how to egress and go through the protocols, you know, out of an AAV. Uh, but they didn't do it, you know. So I'm like thinking to myself, how is it that a guy like me that doesn't know shit about AAVs can kind of figure out how to do AAV training, you know, uh, when when there's like barriers and, and to to doing the training the way you're supposed to do it? Like, where's the, the imagination, the creativity? So yeah, this is very disappointing, you know, and it's, it's very ironic that the China Marines, their motto is whatever it takes. And I saw in this, um, investigation and first investigation, the second, they didn't, they didn't live up to their own motto. They just didn't. And that's how this tragedy happened was, uh, you know, it's lack of professionalism, complacency, you know, a bunch of people got killed, a bunch of Marines and a sailor got killed. So what are you doing to help the future of this? Well, you know, um, I've uh, testified before the House Armed Services Committee's uh, Subcommittee on Readiness uh, regarding this incident. I, I think you'll understand this, DJ, is that uh, I very much care about Marines, but I'm not very happy with the Marines because of this incident. No, I, so, I get what you're saying. Yeah, Um so, you know, I wouldn't call myself, uh, like, I'm not out to get them, but this can't happen like this again. Not like this. 
because this was like a total, total disaster, you know, top down. Uh, you know, you have a battalion commander that really lacked situational awareness the day of the exercise. I know that, you know, in federal law enforcement, if my people were doing something that was high risk and, and I didn't hear from them or they were delayed and delayed again and delayed again, I, I mean, I would assume a more uh, engaged posture, you know, and it, it just seems that a lot of people in the battalion were kind of like disengaged. And, you know, what we've come to find out is that um, these, these AAVs, um, they didn't have to use poor conditioned AAVs. There were some AAVs that were in better condition. There were AAVs from the prior uh, Marine Expeditionary Unit that they could have used those that, that, that were basically uh, probably in, in, in good or very good condition. You know, they didn't have to use poor condition vehicles. So uh, they just didn't do enough. Many of them just kind of fell down on the job. You know, I, I, I'm not going to say that I'm a watchdog, but, you know, like I have a lot of skin in the game. Absolutely. Um, I, th I think all taxpayers should be upset or that, you know, America was sending, you know, poor condition vehicles, you know, essentially to the Middle East of Africa to be part of like America's maritime response force. You know, um, yeah, I, th I think we, we expect more uh, as taxpayers, but, you know, I, I have what I would say more skin in the game because, you know, I lost a family member. Absolutely. What can people do in general to help out though? What, what, if you could say one thing to the people, like this is what I wish you could do to help out this situation. Maybe not necessarily your son or anyone in particular, but help out this situation. Yeah. I mean, well, we have a representative form of government. So, you know, you, you need to engage with your senators and, and congressional representatives. And, and talk to them and tell them that, you know, things like this are unsatisfactory and put the pressure on because really uh, our senators and our representatives, uh, they hold the purse strings, you know, for Absolutely. everything that the federal government does in the military. Absolutely. So, uh, you know, you, you have to work in through our, our process. And, and so I've been, been active with that, you know, um, uh, in touch with our representatives and, and senator, and and so so have been some of the other families. You know, um, you know, I was asked to go on sixty minutes. I was interviewed by Leslie Stahl, and uh, along with one of the other um, families, and uh, we talked about it. You know, it's a death and training episode that sixty minutes to not just on the AVs, but on Humvee rollovers and another. Uh, wheeled vehicle rollover incident. So yeah, you just have to be engaged, you know, like I, I could, I could, um, I could withdraw from society, I guess, withdraw from life, you know, isolate myself. But the reality uh, is that, you know, um, I uh, have a lot of life to live for and, you know, my family, uh, is counting on me. You know, we all love each other and, uh, we still have a lot of life to live. You know, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the uh, we don't get over the things that traumatize us ever. And you, you have to learn to coexist with the trauma. You know, um, you have to 
you have to use more self-discipline uh, to, to basically keep yourself on track. You know, traumas, uh, traumas are part of life, you know, and it'll affect people at some point or, or not, or it'll affect somebody that you love. Talking about it and talking about how, um, you know, I'm dealing with it uh, helps me, but then I can also help others that, that go through the same thing, you know. Uh, I've connected with uh, some of the families from the, the Kabul um bombing. I actually went to five of the funerals with uh, a foundation that brought 50 Marines to Jack's funeral. And I helped them uh, bring Marines to uh, uh, actually seven of the, the Kabul uh, funerals. And, and I went to five with them to uh, do uh, law enforcement agency coordination, force protection for them. So, yeah, but it it, uh, you know, I was ready to stand on the sidelines and, and, you know, I've, I've done my career, done everything I wanted to do professionally and, uh, ready to stand on the sidelines and watch Jack, you know, become a man, become the Marine that he wanted to be. Well, I, I definitely think that this in a strange way is maybe your new purpose in life. I don't know. I don't know any other way to say it. I, I can't imagine being a father, what you've gone through. I can only hope that this helps you help others. Whenever and wherever I can, I will, you know, um, because, uh, nobody should have to go through this. No family should have to go through what we've been through. But if I, if, if they do, you know, I can help them, you know, And, uh, I know, I know that, um, you know, there is a path to joy, you know, after this trauma. Um, and and I've learned some of these things, um, because I participated in a program. It's called the post-traumatic winning program. It's, it's on online by the same name. It's run by a retired Marine major who's become a good friend of mine. And, um, he runs a, like a non, I, I would call him a trauma coach. You know, it's like a non-clinical uh, program that that teaches you uh, some commandments, you know, things that you need to do and and goals to have uh, to put your, yourself on the path to uh, having a joyful uh, life again. And then what you learn, you know, you can help others. So, uh, yeah, that's where I find myself. I guess that's that's my purpose. And I think that's a great way to end the the conversation that we're having tonight. One other thing from you, where can people find you, find out more of your story? Of course, we'll put it on the website, our website, but is there anywhere that they can find you on Instagram, Facebook, anything like that where people can find you? Yeah, so I'm on uh, Instagram. Uh, it's uh, uh, at uh, Peter O1811 or Peter O1811. 1811s, that's our, like our uh, federal criminal investigator job series. And then uh, I'm also on LinkedIn, if you uh, search my name. Um, I'm writing a book. Uh, It'll probably take me a while to finish it, but uh, I realize that um, I've learned a lot of lessons uh, through my career and, and through what's happened to me after my career. So, um, you know, I'm working on that. So 
you may you may see that someday. Absolutely, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Pete, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's uh, your story from not only your career but everything that's happened after it is absolutely amazing, and I'm so honored that you came on here and and uh, gave your story. Guys, uh, that's going to be the conversation tonight. If you want more of me, you know, you can always find me on Facebook at the DTD Podcast. You can find me on YouTube at the DTD Podcast, where all these videos are in conversation form and video form. You can also find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. Don't forget, though, DTDpodcast.net. That's going to be your one-stop shop for this show. It's got the audio, the video. Pete has sent me tons of pictures to add on to his episode page. He'll get a... You'll get to take a look at him. You'll get to take a look at Jack. You'll get to look at everything that was happening during his career and after it. You can also find all of the links that he talked about and where you can find him directly. Also, guys, don't forget, go to our sponsor at Police Coffee, policecoffee.com. Remember, we're a police officer-owned business, and we're dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blends. They're shipped as soon as they're made to provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and the specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. The coffee's some of the best you'll find, but it also serves an important cause, giving back to the community. Remember, 50% of the profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. Don't forget to go to them, policecoffee.com, and when you put in your order, put the code DJK10 for 10% off your order. Once again, guys, go to dtdpodcast.net, check out everything that happened this week, and look for us in the future episodes. Pete, thank you so much again for coming on. That's going to be the show this week, guys. That's Pete. I'm DJ. This has been the show. We'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later.